0: Today's episode, I'm joined by producer, director, and actor, Mike Ankis. Mike has three directing credits to his name, including his film Tributaries, which you can watch on Amazon Prime right now, and his documentary, Chasing Giants. Mike also has a very, very fascinating history in the George Miro universe. He was actually a featured zombie on Day of the Dead, and he was close friends with Tom Savini for a number of years. If you're a George Miro and Tom Savini fan, you're going to love this episode because Mike has some really, really amazing stories that he shares. So without further ado, here is my interview with Mike Ancas. All right. Folks, we are joined by a very, very, very special guest today, Mike Ankus. Mike, how you doing?
1: Very good. How about yourself?
0: I'm, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Oh, it's fun. I'm gonna just I'm gonna let I'm gonna let the shark out of the water right now. Mike was a zombie in one of my favorite movies of all time, the, the original 1985, Day of the Dead. Uh, he was actually one of the zombies that was ripping apart Tasso yep. Um. towards the end of the film. So uh, we're going to hear all about that and a lot of great stories from him. I'm, I'm just, I'm, like I said, I'm probably going to geek out a little bit because <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited. Um, so, Mike, look, let's get started with a little bit of background about you. Where, where were you born? Uh, Arlington, Virginia. Arlington, uh, Virginia.
1: One there long, uh, two years of age. My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, Next thing you know, uh, I wake up in Oslo, Norway, and I'm there for four years. I I learned how to speak Norwegian. The same time I could speak English. Oh wow! For uh, skiing to uh, kindergarten, and kindergarten is a is like a Scandinavian name, anyhow. so that I remember bits and pieces of that. I remember playing outside at midnight with, with the you know full light out because uh, because of the you know the midnight sun kind of thing. That was that was pretty cool. And back to Denver, or back to New York City, and then de- I think I went to three three first grades in different states, two second grades in New Jersey, um, but they did stay put long enough for me to go to uh, high school for, for uh, four years. So four years of the same high school. So that was good. You learn to make friends that way when you're moving yeah. around.
0: All <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to, I I, I would imagine so. Were, were you Were you able to go to high school here in the States or were you overseas? I came back.
1: At age, uh, I came back in time to go to first grade. So went to first grade in Long Island, and then another school in New York, and then finished first grade in Denver, Colorado. So yeah, I went to, uh, uh, like I mentioned in, I, I used the character uh, one, the demographics and in, in the character and tributaries. That's kind of my demographics. I went to Bloomsburg High School, which is kind of near Wilkesbury Scranton, northeastern PA.
0: So your dad was in the military. What what was his job?
1: Oh, his official job or his unofficial job? <laughs> he was kind of like <laughs> an ambassador, but uh, he showed me how to use his Leica camera a few times because he was supposed to be taking pictures of, of Russian planes. So oh, wow. He, he took a lot of pictures of, of Russian planes back then. <laughs> it's still an issue now. Who, who knew?
0: So, so was he kind of a spa in a way?
1: Uh, not officially, but uh, he was part of the diplomatic corps. I, I think they gave everybody a camera and told everybody to take pictures of everything they could anytime they saw anything. So I wow. think that's kind of the way it went.
0: Well, that's yeah, what, what, did, what did your mom do? Uh, she was
1: basically a stay at home mom, which okay. I looking back, I really appreciated it when I, when I went away to uh, high school during the day, um, actually even in elementary school, I think she took uh, some accountant kind of part-time stuff. She was a, she was a smart lady.
0: So um, as, as a child, uh, did you grow up in the, the 50s and 60s? Was that kind of your generation? Uh, not much so the 50s, kind of
1: the, yeah, kind of the 60s, right? Oh, was, 60s. Uh, you know, 54. So I was, uh, in the mid sixties, I was 10 years old.
0: Um, so what, what kind of TV shows and toys were you into back then? Uh, I, I do remember
1: watching, there were only a couple channels, but I remember watching the Rat Pack and, you know, that was a, a military thing in the desert with Jeeps, with machine guns on the back of them. That was a, that was a fun TV show. Um, you know, of course all of us watched Batman. I would, I would. I would geek out to Batman, and my parents would be laughing in the background. And I would turn and say, "Shut up! Shut up! This is like this is serious, you know." <laughs> so that that's that's funny how it was. You know, it was just a it was just a, a hilarious thing to watch when I got older. I had no idea right over my head. So yeah, that kind so, of so
0: it's it, you you It's interesting you mentioned Batman and, and, and what you said about it. Do you think that that show was designed to gear towards children with kind of the cheesiness, the hokiness to it? or do you actually think I mean, just things were so different back then in in, in Hollywood and film that that was just kind of even for adults, that kind of cheesy campiness was expected?
1: I, yeah, I think it was completely for adults. I mean, adults are in charge of the uh, of the remote control, uh, you know, and what channel that you're picking. Uh, and, and even and even a lot of the uh, cartoons that are out now. Uh, the animated uh, films. There's a, a whole layer there for adults, but it also pe- appeals to kids. I think that was the whole point. Uh, but they hit the nail on the head because everybody watched it. I remember watching The Fugitive with my mom, uh, and, and that's a show like everybody watched that. You wanted to know, you know, who the the one-armed man was at the end. Um, there, there, there was more intense uh, television watching. Back then, um, now there's like there's a zillion things on. Uh, how do you know what to watch? There, there there's no, you know they, they used to have water cooler discussions the day after Seinfeld or Twin Peaks or stuff like mm-hmm. that. you can't you can't have that. There's so many things on. No one watches anything in common. But back then, sitting there with my mom watching the, uh, watching the Fugitive. That was awesome.
0: Were you a Star Trek fan?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, right away, and then uh, really upset when that was the end. You know, uh, for a long time. What, you know, what are they doing here? And then of course, uh, you know, when the Star Wars stuff came out, I saw Star Wars three times the first day. Waited wow. again and again and again for for that. I think the first week I saw it ten times. The first one.
0: Wow, <laughs> that's amazing.
1: Actually, I have a, I probably have, there's hardly any people I have that have this record. I have been at the opening day at the movie theater for every Star Wars movie that was released. Certainly all nine, but a couple of the other ones as well. Solo, uh, I was at the first showing possible for every single one. And that's, you know, you have to be my age for that to happen because, you know, uh, I think the first one was in 77 well, when I was 18 or 19 or something like that.
0: Um, I, that that's, I, I I envy, I envy people that have gotten to, to come up in the time that you did. That was just such a magical time for, for yeah. cinema and music and Everything. TV. Yeah, <laughs> I think you,
1: you, what do you. think? Say <clears throat> so, so that one more time. I wouldn't trade it for anything, even though uh, you know I cut the grass today and my whole body is hurting. I'm 68 years old, so it 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 really does. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade if I could be 45 right now. Uh, I would have missed uh, growing up. Our, our parents had no idea where we were. They trusted us, and, and we didn't let them down. We would be back in time for supper we'd go out and play and not, no video games no nothing we were you know uh, when we, we had a lo- we had a friend that we really liked we had to write a letter if they you know if they were long distance and then you'd have to anticipate getting a letter back from them you know there, it was it, it was in my opinion way better back then you know, now everything world. is instant. Nowadays, you, you go to turn on the light switch, and you're impatient because the light doesn't come on fast enough. I mean, that, that's what we've come to.
0: That's, that's hey. true. That's true. I, I, you know, some of the conversations you and I have had off off camera, you talked about being at the premiere, the premieres for uh, not only Day of the Dead, but also Dawn of the Dead. Oh yeah, back in '79. I, I, I just. You know what? Let's, let's let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Because um, cool. you had
1: a question that I looked at that was one of your best movie experiences. Was that one of them? Yeah. This is the answer to that question. It was both of those. Uh, I saw them both at the Monroeville Mall. Okay. Uh, so wow. here I am at Dawn of the Dead. I lived in Monroeville at the time. I lived in Monroeville from 77 to 85. And I, I go into... The, the theater i'm not sure if it was the premiere but it was certainly you know within the first couple days uh, I, I could actually ride my bike you know i had a car obviously but i could ride my bike down there was that close uh, and i remember the intensity of that uh, uh the first movie that did that to me it wasn't night of the living dead it was last house on the left when i saw that in the theater i didn't I didn't puke or anything, but I just couldn't believe the horror of the violence of the murdering of a person that was, that just blew me away. So I was prepared for Dawn of the Dead. I knew it was going to be gory and everything. But after a while, you get desensitized to that whole thing. And when the, when the movie was over... We are released into the parking lot where they filmed Dawn of the Dead. So here we are, you know, milling around, going to our cars. And it was like a surreal experience because there were zombies here milling around. And you felt like a zombie. And I kind of wanted to stay away from people. But but again, we were desensitized because of all the all the violence, and the same thing. I saw it at the same theater, um, and I'm, it was probably the opening day for that. I still have uh, still have the newspaper clipping and my ticket stub. Um, I, I should have brought it, but anyhow, I still have that uh, for Day of the Dead. And same experience, would come out and everybody's kind of looking at each other and we're smiling because, you know, we could, we could be zombies. And the interesting thing about both of those, I had a friend who was an usher uh, at the theater for Day of Dawn of the Dead. He later became manager for Day of the Dead. But the original one-sheet movie poster that hung at the theater in the Monroeville Mall is in my collection for both of those films. Both of those films, the original one, and I'm bringing it to. I'm bringing them both to uh, Living Dead Weekend, and I'm wow. and I'm gonna uh, put a price on them. How do you, how do you put a price on that? <laughs> I mean, that's that's. I, I, I'm not. I'm not greedy. <laughs> I. I don't really at this point in my life i don't I don't want for anything. I had a really good career, you know, so i'm I'm living a comfortable life. Uh, I, uh, I don't want not like my wife doesn't appreciate this stuff, but you know, having zombie movie posters and glass frames around the house, kind of when a guest comes over, uh, you know, uh, it's maybe not something you want to see. I have a, I have a Galaxina poster with Dor- Dorothy Stratton was in a, in a really nice uh, kind of a, a comic version of that film. Uh, she looks great on the poster. Uh, but, you know, uh, my wife's younger than I am. I'm going to drop dead before she will, and I don't want her to have to deal with this stuff. So I'm bringing a bunch of stuff to Living Dead Weekend, my first Living Dead Weekend, and I'm going to put some prices on it, reasonable prices, and, and sell it, including all the photos that I took behind the scenes that uh, on, on Day of the Dead. Who knew so that I just found them in the attic a, a couple months ago. I remember putting them in a scrapbook, but I made 8x10 glossies of of the best ones, and, uh, and I limited them to 100 uh, 8x10s for each shot. And it shows Greg Nicotero. You know, Tom's doing his makeup. It shows Greg, uh, you know, after he ripped Tasso's head off, he's standing there, and George Romero's got the camera, and he's looking at the head, and Greg's looking at me, smiling as I, as I took the picture. So there's some... There'll be some. Well, I, I was the only one behind the scenes taking photos. Uh, so have
0: you have you have you been able to digitally archive those be- before you do sell them? Did you have copies of them?
1: Yeah, yeah. When I did eight by tens, you know, uh, I, I, I I made those copies. But uh, as part of a, an agreement to someone who I met on Facebook on the Living Dead page, uh, there's probably about twenty of them that I did not make copies of on purpose. Uh, I took pictures with my camera of the pages of the scrapbook, but he uh, wanted them desperately. He, uh, He gave me a ridiculous price. I told him that was too much, and I sold it to him for less, but he has the original scrapbook with all the original photos. There's one other person with those original photos, and that's Tom Savini. Uh, Tom is the one that invited me onto the set to take the pictures. And when I took them, you know, back then you had to get film developed. So uh, I got, you know, double prints and I gave him a set and I kept a set myself. So, and he used one of the photos in when he made those a bizarro trading cards. I forget what the name, a gotcha or something. There was some trading cards, which I actually have an original set of that I'm bringing to living dead weekend to sell as a set as well. That's
0: so, that's so incredible. It's, I, I can't, I can't even imagine how, how to even price Cause I mean, those, those are pieces of history. I mean, just, just that dawn of the dead poster alone, this, this actually hung in Monroeville mall that's, theater. Okay. Um, yeah. that's, yeah, that's so incredible. I
1: signed it. I, I did a statement and I signed it. And I also have proof that I live there because I, I have the original contract, um, that or a copy of the original contract. Again, that went with the the uh, the guy on, on the forum who made me a ridiculous offer for that scrapbook. But I made a copy of the contract with with me and Laurel Day uh, Productions and and the dollar the actual dollar bill. He has the actual dollar bill, you know. Oh wow! Yeah, but but I made a copy of the contract, and I'm going to have copies. For people, if they want to have a copy of that and a copy of the call sheet for one of the days that I was there, he has the original call sheet. But uh, you can tell when I when I grabbed the call sheet, I must have had uh, blood makeup, and there's a bloody thumbprint on the call sheet. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, anyhow, that
0: uh, you know that's that's that's, that's so incredible i i i, I won't, i'm not gonna lie to you i want that i want that dawn the dead poster <laughs> because my my idea for my house is i want to have all the universal monsters up i want to get really nice framed prints of those original universal monsters posters and i wanted dawn of dead is my favorite movie i saw it as a teenager uh I was probably well probably about 12 years old i actually named my company after it um yeah i uh, i i love that movie i'm 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 in love with that film. That that's so cool that that somebody's going to get to own that. I think that's that's so phenomenal. Let's let's talk a little bit more about Dawn of the Dead for a second. Sure. I've I've always been of the opinion that it was a movie that kind of redefined cinema and what you could get away with because I think up until that point. Nothing like that had really ever been mainstream released that people could just go see, you know, and, and I know, I know it was like an NC-17 and I know there were some theaters who wouldn't even tell you what the movie was in the paper. It would just say, you know, call for title. Um, so you it's, it's 1979. You're a young man. You're in the theater. You're sitting down. You know, this is going to be a, a, a violent movie, but all of your life, every movie you've seen, the camera turns away. It's left to your imagination In the first 20 minutes, you see somebody's head explode. You know, somebody get their shoulder ripped out, their arm ripped out. What was that like? Did you know that you were watching history at that point?
1: Uh, No, I had no idea. Uh, I, having pretty much been to the Monroeville Mall a hundred times, I got the same reaction that you would get if you were watching a movie that was filmed in your hometown. You know, oh, look, there's the post office. Or, oh, I know that store. Oh, wait, what's that store? That store, wait, they made up a store. That store's not in the Monroeville Mall. You know, so I was having that kind of reaction as well when I was watching it. Um, and I didn't know Tom Savini at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, there was a, it was a serious impact. Like I said, by the end of the film, uh, uh, someone could have shot someone in the head in the parking lot, and it wouldn't have phased me that much. We, you just got so desensitized to all the violence and gore, and it was done so well, mm-hmm. and it wasn't trying to make any kind of statement. It was just putting it, you know, right there in front of you. Uh, the The plot was great. The script was great. Um, I I never thought to to ask Tom, you know, if he had anything I could, you know, make copies of or something from that. But uh, you know, like I said, I hadn't met him yet. Um, But yeah, that was, that was an awesome film that, that set the standard. And in in all honesty, I I, I don't think you can do better because anything after that is kind of a a copy in a way, even day of the dead, which I really like, day of the dead had nothing to do with me being in it. I'm on screen for like two seconds. Uh, So, uh, and, and that was a, that was a, you know, in a trilogy, sometimes except you know, Star Trek pulled it off rather well. Um, but this is a this is a true trilogy. Uh, you get some closure in Day of the Dead. It, it answers some of the questions. It, you know, too bad some of the cat. Well, I guess the characters can't really live on. <laughs> but well, or actually, some of them could have. Uh I was Yeah, wondering.
0: I guess I guess technically Rhodes could have cuz he got ripped in half. Yeah, so he right. he, he, could, he could have reanimated. Yeah. Steel wouldn't, wouldn't.
1: Around, though.
0: <laughs> I think actually I think Rhodes probably would have been the only one that could move because Steel shot himself.
1: Yeah, that's right. And had, uh Ta-
0: yeah. Tasso got ripped to pieces. Uh yeah. Ralph Ralph Murillo got ripped to pieces. Yeah. Um yeah. Greg 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 got experimented on. Um he yeah, was just ahead in right. the lab at that point. Yeah. Um I'm drawing. It's it's been it's been a few months since I've watched it. I'm trying to think of how everybody died. Uh, t- um, the one guy got his I, I can't remember the actor's name, but he got his throat ripped out and then still shot him. Right, that's right. Um, so I, th- you know, actually I've never thought about this. I think the only person that could have, in theory, lived on because you don't know for sure how bad they decimated his body was Rhodes. Yeah,
1: yeah. His brain was still intact. You know, yeah. Uh, who knows? Um, I wasn't on the set that day. Uh, that would have been a fun day to be on set.
0: I've heard it was rough, though, because they the, the the pig intestines got left out over the weekend. <laughs>
1: yeah, they took off to go to Florida, and someone unplugged the refrigerator. Uh, even though, uh, it you know, I was there, I was on set for eight days, and it was cold. Uh, you're talking about 50 degrees, maybe 52. And that's why they parked all the RVs and and the boats and everything down there because it was, you know, naturally climate controlled. So it probably could have been a lot worse than than it was because uh, it was only, you know, it was at least 50 degrees. Yeah, but I heard, I wasn't on the, that was shot later. Uh, I wasn't on the set after that. But I do have... And it's not, and this is one of the, this is one of the uh, photos I probably should have scanned before I gave it away, but there's a, a scene showing the refrigerator and the entire storyboard on the wall for the shooting schedule, not the storyboard, but the shooting schedule. It was put up with, I I, I actually, uh, I, I don't have a really nice copy, but I do have a, a, a copy of, you know, from, from when I, took a picture with my phone but yeah someone said is that the infamous refrigerator and I said, yes it is (laughs) yeah that was that was a mess
0: yeah uh, and apparently Joe was in that spot for several hours with that stench I I I have a lot of respect for him for being able to pull that off that must have been awful Uh, and 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 you know being on the topic of gore um, and just looking at Dawn of, and going back to Dawn of the Dead for a second, um, you made an interesting point. You talked about it was well done, and, and I don't know if I could say tastefully done. I don't know if you could even use that phrase for for gore in a film. But I get it. But it, it's and and let me be clear. I'm not knocking Lucio Fulci. Okay, I'm not. I'm not the world's biggest Fulci fan. He he was a good director. Uh, you know, he's got you know some great films. But one of the things when I watch a Fulci film, you know, Eli Roth will call him like his, you know, his gross out films, or maybe it was Quentin Tarantino that called him that. Um, The the gore is disgusting. Like it makes my stomach turn a little bit, but I don't get that same reaction when I watch it in Ramiro's films. And this is not a bias to Ramiro because I mean the the gore, the gore in both of their films is is graphic and it's realistic. And, but, but there's something about the way Fulci does it. And I can't really put into words what it is that makes me, I find it disgusting. But when, when, when I watch Ramiro, when I watch Tom, what Tom Savini did, it, it doesn't have that same impact on me. It's like, woo, that's rough. But, but I don't feel disgusted by it. You know, it, it, it seems like it's done well and natural. And you know, do you, do you know what I mean by that? Could, could you put I words on that?
1: Text of the whole thing. I think, I think that goes back to a good script, you know, and, and a good execution of the script, something that I, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would have done a better job with my film. But um, when you execute the script well, and and everything is within the right context, and you're you're buying into it, um, you know, Italian directors, they they're on like a different planet. Things, it seems like sometimes the gore is just there for the gore. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's the way I see it sometimes. Um, but yeah, that it, makes it, sense. Yeah, it didn't. And then Tom is so realistic, um, you know. He's when it comes to effects, he he was always, you know, he's not OCD in any other way that I ever noticed. But um, but uh, he 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 has to have it right, and and there aren't a lot of takes because he's careful to make sure that he gets it right. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times can you cut somebody open and have their guts fall off the? you know, the table as they're trying to get up. Well, you can only, I think there were only a couple takes with that. You, you can't keep doing that. So you got to get it right. So he planned it out really well.
0: So, that's a heavy burden in a production too. I never really considered that. The fact that you maybe get one or two shots and that's it. And it has to work.
1: It has to, know, to work. So- when, when we were shooting... Uh, at, at the the opening scenes uh, for the, in tributaries of Comic Con, that we had we we had a Sunday to shoot, uh, and we had until five o'clock. Now, if I'd known that we would get everything shot that we needed to get shot, I would have enjoyed it immensely. But I was a little stressed because quarter to five comes along. We had to wait for the costume contest to end so we could have the main stage back. And basically, they they were so nice to let me film there, but they said I had to be done by 5.15, and we still had some scenes that needed to be shot. And if we missed them, we would have to wait four months uh, because that was the next Comic-Con. So I think we got them with two minutes to spare.
0: Uh, Wow. (laughs)
1: There is pressure, uh, you know, that, which I'm sure Tom faced. You know, you're gonna you're gonna shoot up Logan, and and how many how many takes can you have? You got to make sure everything goes right. Uh, oh, and all the squibs that yeah. were involved in that shot. Yeah, there were a zillion of them, and I betcha he felt them. So. You
0: was that a, was that a single take when they killed Logan in the movie? Was that one take?
1: I'm for that day, uh, I'm I would think yeah. Uh, he Tom is an expert with that stuff. He went on Letterman, uh, and and I think I think he shot Dave, if I remember.
0: He tried to now I I I've, those clips are on YouTube. He tried to convince, if I recall correctly, he tried to convince Dave to let him shoot him, and Dave wouldn't do it because he was scared of the squib.
1: Yeah, I actually they- recorded them right off of the TV set because I was at Tom's house the one night. he was, The next morning, he was leaving uh, for New York to shoot, to, to go on Letterman. And he, he was bringing Lizzie with him. I was in his basement and we were talking about a bunch of stuff. So he had Lizzie from uh, Tales from the Dark oh. in inside the closet uh, uh, episode. And uh, so he was bringing Lizzie. Uh, and, uh, so I know he was, I think, yeah, it was the time before that, that he, I think he tried to shoot Dave, but anyhow, you, you got to be safe. You got to be accurate. You know, you'd have to completely change the wardrobe again. So I, I, if I had to guess, I'd guess that, you, that was a one taker.
0: I, yeah, I can't imagine reestablishing that shot more than once. The amount of squibs. I mean, th- there had to have been 20 or 30 easy. Yeah. And by the time that was done.
1: That's right. And anything, any, anybody, any zombie that gets shot in the head, then there's you got to go back into makeup. And so Tom was clearly, I never thought about it too much, but he was very accurate at, at what he did because you can't waste camera time. And back then, they had actual film. Mm-hmm. You know, we shoot digitally now, obviously, but they, they had film editing process. You had to like cut the film and put, Oh, I, I just, that blows my mind. I, I can't imagine what that was like.
0: I, I, I would, I would actually love to do that at one point. One of my, my prior guests, a guy, Hilton, Ariel Ruiz, he, um, when he was in film school back in the, the mid nineties, they, they were still doing things on film. He actually still has a Steenbeck machine. He has his own personal Steenbeck that he can edit on. <laughs> and he did, he did a short film uh, called Survival. And um, it, it it was funny because I watched it, and I spent a really large amount of time of the episode talking about this short film because it was really really incredible what he did, but uh, it it the film has aged so much that you know it has all the scratches and and all the imperfections that you get on sixteen millimeter over time. It almost looks like he applied a filter, but that's actual just age and patina and wear on the film itself. Wow. Um, I would I would definitely like to do that. I, I can't imagine how much more difficult filmmaking must have been in in that time. I mean, like, you know, cause I, you know, if you're shooting three to one, it's okay. You know, I mean, we got three shots at this and that's it. And and the amount of pressure that Tom must've had on him, I've never really sat and really thought about that. The, the stakes for every shot that he was involved in is just how much, I wonder if he ever lost sleep on productions, just, just out of sheer anxiety.
1: He never talked about that, but, but I know from me, my wife and I, the night before we were going on uh, on set, she'd hardly got any sleep. and um, I would get maybe half of what I what I usually get, maybe four or five hours I would get because you can't help but think about what's coming up. Uh, and I would I would have like a notepad by my bedside and I'd wake up in the middle of the night, not turn the light on because I'd never get back to sleep and I'd jot down something. And then of course the next morning I got to look at it and figure out what in the world was I trying to, but you know, because something's going to come to you and uh, and you're going to need to remember that when you go on set. And then you're shooting in a location, you've got to get it done. You've got to, you know, you're putting someone out usually when you're at a location. So uh, you know, there, there is a lot of pressure, but I didn't, I didn't feel that pressure very much. My wife did, uh, Brenda, but, but I, I never really, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, the filmmaking process was one of the most fun things that I ever did. I never thought I'd be able to do it after being on the set of Day of the Dead and looking at everything they had to do and all the extras And the storyboards and the special effects and how, you know, it all had to come together and the schedule that they were able to keep. Uh, I looked at that and I thought, I'd like to make a film someday, but that's never going to happen. But um, it did on a smaller scale, obviously, you can handle it. Uh, But I just I just love being on set. I love being on anybody's set,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. any set. I just love it.
0: But back then, could you imagine a digital world? Like, I mean, if, if, if you go back to 1985, you're on the set of David Did the Could you imagine that one day you were going to live in a world where you could have a phone in your pocket that you can make a movie with?
1: Not a clue. Not a clue. It, it, uh, there was no re- reason to even think that. There was no Internet. Uh, you know, the, our world was a lot smaller then. Really, you know, uh, as far as confined. We didn't know what was going on in other parts of the world, other parts of the country, other parts of our state. You know, we we had uh, news that we watched, and and if they didn't cover it in a half an hour or an hour, you didn't know. You, know, you could read the paper, but the paper's only you know 15 pages or something like that. So there could be stuff going on, you know, across the state, and you'd have no idea. And you know, CNN comes and then. There's you know 24 hour news and now we know everything. But back then, mm-hmm. everything was confined. Uh, so yeah, you, you didn't think about things like that. Maybe you know you're you know, we we walked on the moon and 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 um, you know we thought maybe we could uh, hopefully in my lifetime um, you know be like Star Trek and be able to go into space and stuff like that. Uh, so we were. We were all kind of hoping for that, but no, we never thought about it in terms of that kind of technology.
0: So how did, how did you originally get connected with, uh, with George Amiro and Tom and, and all of the crew and get involved in Dave the dead?
1: I, I was, I, I was playing in this volleyball league and I played in the volleyball league for 15 years. It was called the human services volleyball league. It, uh, I was working at Allegheny Valley school, which, uh, uh, it was like a, uh, uh, a campus-based uh, living situation for physically and mentally challenged adults, mostly. Uh, and uh, we had our own volleyball team. And uh, we played the Housing Authority. We played um, a couple of the, the institutions had teams. The Pittsburgh Blind Association had a team. Park. Uh, Pennsylvania Association of Retarded Citizens had a team, you know, and and the league was formed so that we could um, get to know the people on the other end of the phone that we're talking to. You know, we had a housing issue with one of our residents, so we would, and, oh, hey, hi, Bob. Uh, too bad you guys lost last night, haha. <laughs> you know, that, so th- that's the way it was. Um, so, so we had this, this league, and we did play right near... Tom's house. And one of the guys in the league was doing some kind of, um, newsletter. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, Tom Savini lives like right down from where we play volleyball, uh, cause we played at a bunch of different schools. Uh, here's his number, uh, give him a call. I want you to interview him for, and I don't remember what it was. It was some horror related thing. I think, um, a creep show had already been out Night Riders that kind of thing so anyhow I call him up out of nowhere hi Tom you know we start talking uh, well I wish I still had copies of the notes that I took from that but who knew you know uh, so I, I we probably talked for about an hour and then I wrote an article and uh, the guy printed it and I don't know where that article went I don't even, don't even remember what it was about obviously it was probably about Tom, a similar way of that you're interviewing me now, it was that kind of thing with him. Um, so then we were sitting around, me and my three female roommates. It, it was the 80s, and uh, and we were watching Night Riders on HBO or Cinemax or something. And the my the one girl I was living with, little Italian thing, she she and the and the other girl, they, they were looking at the Black Knight, you know, Tom, and they go, oh my gosh, she's gorgeous, what are you gonna go? You know, I, I know that guy. And they go, no way! You know, and 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 yeah, I, I know him. Yeah, you want me to call him up? No, no, you're not gonna, so I I had his number. I think I interviewed him just, you know, a month before. So I call him up, start a conversation, put the phone in, in her hands, and she's talking to him, this is, it is. It's Tom. You know, he invites us over to his house. So me and two of the girls go over to Tom's house, down into his basement. He's talking to us about different stuff, and and then it just kind of one thing led to another, and Tom and I kind of became friends. So that's how that that all all started.
0: Now, at this point in time, in his basement, did he was that his workshop? You know, and he had all kinds of crazy. Okay.
1: Yeah, he pretty much everything everything
0: down there. So, so he had, so he would have had the fluffy puppet at this point as he well did. from Crib Show. Wow, yep.
1: I saw that. <laughs> he brought that on the Letterman. And I remember I he remember brought that. Jason. I, I I just thought of this now. He brought the the uh, machete he had from uh, uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, where the machete goes in and the whole head jason's head opens up his past he brought that to letterman and i'm sure I, I don't remember seeing that but i but i'm sure i did i saw everything down there i was watching him sculpt uh that lizzie character you wow know. so uh
0: i actually only have one cool piece of, of history uh for, for from that era um it, and, and i'll i'll i will never sell this in a million years i uh I in a in a record shop in Knoxville, Tennessee, a tiny record shop, okay? I found an original Creepshow comic.
1: Oh. Yeah.
0: And, had, had I thought about it. I would have I would have brought it in here with me and I could show it to you on camera. In fact, hey, after hang out after the episode, I'll go grab it and show it to you. Yeah. yeah um, I'll I'll put it on camera. I I literally I was I was searching for a comic from the 90s and I I googled local uh, comic shops in this record store popped up on on the the hits. So I went and I was sitting there searching through the comics and like the second to last and maybe like the it was I think it was the last box I checked, and it may have been like the second to last comic in there was was an original creep show comic and i i I just I couldn't, yeah, I was like, I'm not you know, I, I would have paid full price for it, but the haggler in me was like, "I'm going to try to get this for cheaper than what they had it listed for." And they had it; they had it listed for far cheaper than it was worth. Trust me, like a quarter of it. I think I paid twenty bucks for that thing. Wow. Yeah.
1: A <laughs> comic is a nice little thing, though. A movie poster hanging on the wall—that's a, you know, forty-one by twenty-seven.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! I, I can't. I, I I'm so I'm so jealous of that. That that is. Because that's one of the posters I want to have hanging in my house is Dawn of the Dead, and I would love to have one from nineteen
1: seventy eight. Yeah, um, got the original I, that hung in the theater.
0: I, I cannot, I cannot even imagine. That's and it, and it's a great conversation piece too, because somebody comes in there like you know, when there's no more room in hell, the dead walk the earth. What what does that mean? You know, <laughs> and, and you have to explain it to them. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, so you, so you meet Tom. and You're in his basement. And you're seeing his workshop. Okay. Yep. So you're so you get invited to come on Day of the Dead. But but take us take us through I want to know everything. Everything you can I'm think of.
1: To, I'm trying to remember if there was anything before that. I don't think so. He must have been working on Just let's see. There was a creep show. I think there was something in between there. But anyhow, so for for Day of the Dead, uh he, everything was by phone then. He must have called me up and said, uh, "Hey, we're, we're filming in the mines there in you know not right near Beaver Falls. You know, uh, now I, I had a, a full-time job. I was a psychotherapist. I was working in geriatric psychiatry at, at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. So it was a pretty important job. It was my career. You know, I had a master's degree and I was, uh, you know, finishing up my PhD at the time. So I was I was seriously, you know, into that. But I did take a week off. And, you know, I had the weekend, too. So I went into the into the mines and, you know, Tom, hey, you know, come here and whatever. Um, he, He said, bring your camera. So I had my I think it was like a. Minolta or something, 35 millimeter film. Uh, it's dark as hell down there. Um, can't use a flash because they're doing lighting and stuff like that. So I had to, so a lot of the photos that I took are a little washed out, but I mean, that's that's part of the, the whole thing, obviously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, 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 to me, it was like a hobby. It was like going to a friend's house, and they're do, you know, and and I know Tom. It was a career for him, but no one made a lot of money back then. So, I, I I knew Tom would only ever want to do this, but it might not have worked, and he might have had to go into something else. You know, he made a couple jumps in his in his career from you know being on stage, acting and stuff like that, stunt kind of stuff. So, you know, you never know. So I, I kind of looked at it as a hobby and it was fun being on set. I was taking all these pictures. Uh, 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 the first couple of days, there was a big assembly line of I think they were CMU students. Um, Makeup. Uh, now Point Park wasn't really big back then. That, that's a big drama kind of place in, in Pittsburgh now, Point Park University. But I think these were CMU students. And um, they were there doing assembly line zombie makeup. You know, put some cereal on that guy's face or put some blood. Next, you know, you would go from one station to the next and you came out the zombie wardrobe person, that kind of stuff. So I did that for the first uh, few days and then the one day he said hey, we got a we got a spot he want should do this scene with us so uh, the, i was uh, in, in the makeup chair and uh, that's when they made me up to you know that you know it'll look like that that photo on the back wall and the majority of the makeup that day was done by Tom's apprentice at the time which was Greg Nicotero so that was I think there was somebody else involved, but Craig was uh, you know doing my makeup. Uh, and I remember having my camera with me. So we were getting ready to to shoot the scene. I had my camera as a zombie. and of course, you couldn't take pictures like that any you know back then, you had to look through the viewfinder Mm -hmm. and i I have this great picture that i'll have at the living dead weekend of george romero kind of going like this right where you know showing the zombies what to do when Tazo you know falls down and you know so he's like directing the shot so i actually have that photo that i'll have at the living dead weekend uh so i'm getting to take all these interesting shots and then of course the scene where we rip tasso's head off i can tell you for a fact that was a one taker Wow,
0: you you couldn't duplicate that. It was so masterfully done too, especially when the the they the guy that did the the sound edit, he you know when, when when as his head's coming off, the scream it, it, it increases in uh, <laughs> it gets higher and higher pitched yeah, as the vocal cords right. tear. It gets higher, that's right. So
1: they shoot, they get done shooting that scene. So I'm done, and and you know Tazo's body body's there but his head's buried in the thing so he gets up and and then uh, i've got this great shot of george romero looking through the camera and a couple other uh there's an ad there as well and there's lighting people and they're looking through the camera at the head that uh, greg has his fingers in the eye sockets and you know the, the camera's like this Greg's got the head. The head is looking at the camera. Greg's looking away, and his his fingers are in the sockets. And there's a guy over here who's working the actual mechanical movements of the head. The mouth opening up and down, the eyeballs moving, and, and so that there's some other facial things they had. So they were practicing that. Now I've seen the movie. Many times, obviously. But the last couple times I saw it, I don't remember seeing the camera following the head as he's carrying it away and it's silently screaming. Is that in any one that
0: you saw? I don't, I don't recall. I, uh, if I remember correctly, it doesn't... F- follow it far i think it zooms in a little bit and and follows it just a a a tiny bit but i I don't i don't think um
1: yeah there was one i saw and it mustn't have it must have been in the theater um because the dvd copy i have doesn't doesn't have it but they you know they had a dolly laid out on uh, the camera was on a you know the little railroad track there and and greg was walking away and the camera was on the railroad track following and you could see his arm about here and the head and the head was still screaming silently. Uh, and, and that shot, that went on for maybe a count of about three or four seconds. Okay. That, I think that was in the original film. Uh, maybe it's just in my head because I watched them film that. No, I've well, got like,
0: it. I've got it. I've pictures. got keep it queued up here. I'm not going to play the audio just in case, you know, for copyright reasons. But let me, yeah, least fast forward. Okay, so they're pulling his head off.
1: Yeah,
0: he's screaming, and and it's it's okay. So the camera, the camera, okay, so the camera doesn't dolly forward. It pans up a little bit. I mean, it literally, it's it's about that much of a pan. Yeah, to follow so his that, head a little bit.
1: They shot the whole thing of of Greg walking away the camera following with George with his you know George was walking like that looking in the camera making sure every and they practiced it a few times and and they did do several takes of that shot as the as the camera moved on the tracks of the dolly and and Greg walked away so that so maybe i just remember that because i was standing right there i was taking yeah. those I took several photos of that sequence. Uh, one that you can, you, you don't see Greg's face, he's looking the other way, but you see everything else. And You can also see then the guy who was operating the mechanics of the head. So I, I have that shot. So maybe Maybe I just remember, that and maybe the whole thing just got cut
0: out. I don't. It, it's it's very possible. I I I would be curious to know if that footage still exists. You know, I wonder if maybe Tom has it or because I I believe, because you know the, the original Dawn of the Dead ending, um, Ken and Galen killed themselves, mm-hmm. and Tom and Tom said in a recent interview, I've heard him say they never shot it, and I've heard him say they have shot. It, but he said in a recent interview I saw that they they had footage of her body falling from the helicopter after she would put her head in the, the propeller. So I, that makes me wonder if maybe maybe that footage still exists if Tom has it.
1: I don't know. I know I ended up on the cutting room floor for one scene. There was, towards the end, when the zombies are released from that area that they had, um, you know, there was a wooden pen and all the zombies were behind there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Uh, The zombies get, actually, I'm the one who smashes open the, the, the one door, wooden door, and leads the zombies out of that compound. But if you watch the film, you don't see me. But I'm the one that smashes open the door. So I hit it, and it came back and hit my hand again, and I hit it again, and then... And, and I, I was watching, I, I, you know, they were shooting it. I saw George right there, you know, So and then we were all supposed to walk past the camera. But they mustn't have liked the way I moved or the way the door came back. Um, I know we did it a couple times, and uh, but that would have been a nice scene to be in. But that was shot, so there's footage of that somewhere. Um of course, if it was digital, you know, it would it would be clearly right there, and you could mm-hmm. put it if you wanted to. Um, but film stock, who knows what they might have cut it and thrown it away, you know. So something, something, the editing they didn't they didn't like that. So I ended up on the cutting room floor, and I thought that was going to be my scene. And when I went to see the movie, I'm there. Oh wait, oh, wait, oh, you know what can you do because that was the cameras were like right there i smash open the door and but when you watch the movie you'll notice that the door is already open and all these zombies come out well how did the door get open well the door got open because i broke it open but i don't know i guess it just didn't it just didn't look right maybe
0: uh, there's there's no telling george george was. I know he's pretty deliberate in how he, how he edited things. So there must've been something there that, but you know, even, even despite that all these years later, you're, you're, you're a, a a living, breathing, walking museum. The The memories you have, the stories you have from that time are, are, are so amazing. And I, and I want to again say thank you for coming on the show to share these things because these, these stories need to be told. They they need to be told. I mean, this is this is a piece of history, and, and you're you're walking around with these just these pearls, these treasures. And I'm 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 am like I'm, I'm just sitting here enamored. Like I'm I'm so stoked to be talking to you. I really I'm appreciate dying. you guys.
1: Tom, I was friends with Tom. He invited me onto the set, you know, and there were several other phone calls and invitations that, looking back, I wish I had taken the time. You know, Tom and I have lost touch with each other I see him from time to time but we were we were as good of friends as you could be without being best friends mm-hmm. so I was like next level best friends with Tom we saw each other a lot we would trade back videotapes oh Tom do you have the I've been wanting to see the hideous sun demon do you have that and uh, yeah I got a copy of that do, what about the do you have this and said, oh yeah and I remember going over to his house uh and we. Put in the VC, you know the the VHS tapes. We'd lay down in his bed. He had a screen. Kind of in the ceiling. Floor. Oh yeah. wow! It was one of the 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 you know the ones that were projected. So we'd lay there and and you know how many people can say they watched movies in, in the bed with Tom Savini? So we're we're watching these stupid. signs. he had a he had a soft spot for. The cheesy science fiction stuff, which was my my big thing. I just I love that stuff. The fifties and sixties cheesy stuff, well done stuff. But you know, Earth versus the flying saucers, and that kind of that kind of stuff. So and then he would call me up and said, um, "I'm I'm working on this remake of Night of the Living Dead, and you know, can you come out? Uh, I, I I'm looking for a, a porch zombie." So it's going to take a day. And I'm there, Tom, I got a conference. I forget what my excuse was. But I turned him down reluctantly. You know, he's a friend. He's asking me to come help. He's, oh, all right, I, I'll, go, I'll get somebody else. Uh, you know, it wasn't like he needed me for anything. But I know he had a tough time with that project. Mm-hmm. I know it wasn't an easy thing. And I, I feel guilty that I wasn't there for him. Uh, being a psychotherapist, that can come in handy sometimes when someone's having anxiety or some issues. You know, I'm trained to you know, talk people into coping better with with what they're dealing with. So I don't know if I could have helped at all there. And then he called me down to his studio in Lawrenceville the one time when he was working on Two Evil Eyes. And he had something he asked me to be a part of. And he was showing me around the, the studio and again, I, you know, I've got, got to work. And then he stopped calling after that. At some point, you know, he, he would call, and then I would have an excuse. You know, I always tried to get him into racing because I was racing cars back then. Mm-hmm. He could drive a stick, obviously. He had a motorcycle. The, the motorcycle from Night Riders sat out in front of his house for years, just cover on it, right in Taylor Street in Bloomfield just for years you could you could always know where Tom's house was if you didn't know exactly the number you just go down Taylor and there's a big motorcycle with a cover on it oh that's his house so uh, you know I I I just I, I guess I he would call and ask me to do stuff and you know and, and then I tried to get him into racing and I like I said I knew he could drive a stick Um, and he never seemed that interested or he was busy or something like that. So we, I never really completely connected with his work and he didn't, never really connected with my hobbies. Mm -hmm. And so I I think in sometime in the mid nineties, you know, we just, you know, didn't, didn't call each other much anymore. So that that's too bad because. He, looking back, out of all the people I've met in my life at, at being 68 now, a whole bunch of them are idiots, a uh, lot of talkers and not a lot of doers. He was, He had the same general philosophy and commitment that my wife and I do. We're not talkers. When we come up with an idea, we do it. You know, We wrote a, a book together recently. I wrote four books before that. In order to write a book, you've got to be disciplined. You know, I broke all these records racing. I ended up in the Hall of Fame uh, for uh, for my racing. And, you know, when, when we say we're going to make a film, well, yeah, we're going to make a film. You hear people talking about stuff. And they, well, Tom was, wasn't a talker. He, he didn't do much talking at all. He, he was just a doer. There's not a lot of people like that that you meet. Plus, he was a really nice guy. So there's a friend I wish I could have held on to. Uh, I'll be obviously running into him in a few weeks, so maybe I'll apologize for not you know turning turning down him asking me to do stuff yeah, maybe it maybe he didn't think I was that interested you know, but that was I'm, a-
0: I'm yeah, I'm very confident that it's he's probably just gonna be thrilled to reconnect with you.
1: I don't know, I ran into him a couple times at uh, Comic-Con and things like that. And, you know, he would just kind of say hi. And I, I felt like he he clearly knew who I was and maybe something bothered him, I'm not sure, because it was just a hi, how you doing? And then, you know, move on. Of course, he might he obviously been busy at a Comic-Con, but he was like walking down the aisle where I was a vendor. And, you know, just talked for a short time i was started to tell him about tributaries and he just didn't seem that interested which i wouldn't i wouldn't blame him and then you know so maybe this time i'll uh, i'll be the person to reach out because he was just a he was just a cool guy all the way around you know and i'm a cool guy too so you know, we should be we should be on some level of friends if, if it's possible
0: I think it's fantastic. I I, I really do. and I really hope that you guys are able to reconnect and kind of rekindle that friendship again. You know, it's a, uh, and, and, and I'm, and I'm sure just kind of hearing your side of things. He'll, I mean, he'll understand. I, I highly doubt he'll hold it against you. I mean, I don't know Tom personally, I'm making a lot of assumptions here, but.
1: No, I don't think he would hold anything against me. Uh, I just thought he, I'm guessing he just felt like, well, you know, I asked Mike a few times to, if he wanted to do something, which is my, you know, being Tom, it's you know my thing, and Mike just didn't seem to be interested in my thing, so oh well. If I was, but you know, like I said, if I had it to do over again, I'd have been sitting on the porch in the in the rocking chair, and there's a zombie on the porch in the rocking chair of the. I think it's near the beginning of of Night of the Living Dead. That that would have been me. Well, I had to. I do
0: actually. The, I, 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 it's funny we're talking about that because I actually connected with a guy who was in—he uh, was a zombie in uh, the 1999 Living Dead. I'm—I'm I'm, I'm trying to get him to come on the podcast. He's—he's—he's uh, he's, he's a brilliant really horror writer. Um, oh. So I'm—I'm I'm, I'm really excited. I'll keep you in a loop on that if I'm able to get him on. Yeah, um, I'll well, talk about him.
1: Connect with uh, some of those guys. They'll be—they'll be at the Living Dead weekend, and I'll be at the VIP thing afterwards. So uh, hopefully we'll have credentials so we can you know, say, hey, are you you the guy from Night of, Night of the Living Dead remake or, you know, meet some of the other people? I think that that'll be, I think, for me, the most fun part of it.
0: Absolutely. What 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 was it like getting to work with George a, a, as an actor?
1: I wish I I wish I had gotten to know him more. Uh, he he wasn't your typical director. I've been on uh, a zillion sets at this point. Well, a zillion. I've been on probably close to 30 sets. Maybe 15 of them are big productions. Tom Hanks on set, you know, Jason Momoa. Uh, I was an extra in uh, David Finchner's uh, Hunter series a couple times. Uh, so I've been around a lot of directors. I got to stand right next to David Finchner outdoors Uh, with about five monitors that uh, under a kind of a tent and Fitchner standing there watching all the different monitors. It was an outdoor scene towards the end of Hunter, when they confront the, the one guy's confronting the mayor. And I was an extra and my starting point was right there by David Fitchner, and they would say action, then I would walk out into the street, and a bunch of other people walked out from other locations. So I'm standing there right next to him, and he turns around and he sees me, and they're all, oh, I'll move, and he goes, no, no, that's fine, Just, just you were supposed to be there, just what, but I'm watching, I got to see a lot of different directors, um, but George was completely different. He, in between takes, he, he would sign autographs. I, I have a picture of him uh, that I'll have at the Living Dead weekend of signing on on the set, signing autographs for two zombies. You you wouldn't ask Jason Momoa or Tom Hanks or any of the directors for. They're doing their thing. They're
0: mm-hmm.
1: I get that. They're they're in the zone, you know. Uh, and they tell you do not ask for an autograph. Don't talk to them really unless they talk to you. You know that kind of thing. Although Tom Hanks and Jason Momoa and, you know, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, Kristen Stewart, they're all just really nice and they'll come up and talk to you and stuff all the time. But Romero was completely approachable. People would ask him questions. He'd joke with people. Uh, he was like one of the guys on the set uh, when he... He'd he'd have everything set up. There'd be a lot of chatter and then, you know, quiet on the set and then people would be quiet and then he'd shoot the scene, cut, and then, you know, then he's talking to everybody again. So that's what it was like. Uh, You know, I didn't do much acting um, other than walk around like a zombie. But, uh, you know, he he was just like your friend. He really was. It was just kind of like your friend. Uh, that's the only film I ever got to work with him on. If I had said yes to Tom a couple times, there would have been more, you know, but
0: I didn't. I, I've heard he was very down to earth, personable, humble. I've heard it. Somebody, I, I met somebody at a convention, they met him and said, talked about how humble the man he was, you know, oh. to have had the career he's had. Yeah. He's very oh. humble.
1: Well, he didn't think it was going to go anywhere. You know, Star Wars, they didn't know that was going to go anywhere, but that was a big budget. Night of the Living Dead, that wasn't, you know, a dentist was doing something, you know, that people were putting up money for whatever, just like we do now, almost like crowdfunding. This was friend funding. You know, people are putting up different money, and then they got enough money, and they make Night of the Living Dead. So uh, George was just like you and me in the beginning who knew that anything was going to happen they, they hoped it would and then you know each thing he got a little bit better with and there were bigger budgets and then dawn of the dead pretty much lit up the board and then from that point on he had a whole bunch of you know great projects um night riders didn't get much play anywhere uh, you know creep show pretty successful that was a you know, so gradually he got, you know, more recognition and more notoriety. I'm not sure he felt he deserved it um, from if you're from a, a, a psychology point of view. He mm-hmm. seemed like the type of person that wasn't sure he was better than anybody else. Like, in other words, you know, just about anybody else. But that kind of skill set. And commitment could probably do what he did. I think that's what he kind of thought. That's that's the impression I got from the contact I had with him. That's interesting. Yeah, that's what. Maybe that's why he was humble.
0: You know, uh, to, to to have. I mean, he he created. He created a universe. You did. I mean, to, to, to this day, I mean, people are still operating in that universe, you know, with The Walking Dead and all of its spin offs. And just every, I mean, every, really every zombie movie out there that's not like a, you know, voodoo zombie kind of thing, it's, uh, you owe that to George Romero. Yeah. You know, and, right. and to maintain that, to, to, to maintain actual, like to not actually feign humility, but to actually truly be humble and as down to earth as he was, that's an incredible thing.
1: Yeah, but it's, I think he got the sense that he ripped off stuff i I remember he was talking one time i think it was i I can't remember if i actually dreamed it or what but uh i'm almost positive uh he was in tom's basement the one time and and i but uh, either way we were talking uh must have been on the set then and uh, he was talking about invisible invaders which is one of my favorite films really low budget kind of thing You know, it's a a science fiction kind of thing, but their people are turning into zombies. And that was a big influence on him. So I I think he got the sense that, you know, maybe he was kind of ripping that off a little bit. Uh, I I don't know. but And now you can't make, you know, even if you've got this great idea, you can't make an an original movie nowadays. You can't write an original book. There's been a zillion movies. How, How can you, you know, can't write an original song. How do you write an original song? There's only eight notes you
0: know you, put,
1: you know billy gibbons i saw an interview with him on a jay leno thing and he goes oh, i'm still playing those same three chords you know for zz top uh, I, so i i don't know so uh it's it's hard to be original and i i think he he didn't i don't think he recognized as much how original he really was but he was
0: yeah i mean he did something that no, but I mean, even even with something like Plan Nine from Outer Space, I mean, it still wasn't. Now I know in Night, there there, some would argue that you you don't really know the origin of of the zombies and his stories. But it, in Night of the Living Dead, there was the talk of the Venus space probe and the, you know it exploding in the atmosphere and the radiation it released. So I, I think I think it, it it could be fair to say that it was radi- some sort of strange extraterrestrial radiation that that caused <laughs> the zombies. But but it was still it was still really original what he did.
1: Yeah, completely. And you know, I try and be original with tributaries. Um, the, like I said, I the, the script uh, it was like a 120 page script that my wife and I kind of tag team teamed. And uh, you know, I I always saw it as pretty pretty original. I, implementing it uh, was another thing, but you know, what can you do? Uh, it, it's all everything's been done already.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. I, I, it's yeah. Being a filmmaker today is tough one because I mean the, the industry looks so different. I mean, really today, it's all about superhero movies and, you know, more established. I mean, you know, the new Top Guns coming out, you know, if, if you're not an established IPRA, it's hard to, you have to find some way to do it just a little bit differently. Um,
1: yeah. And because there's so many people doing it, it's really impossible to get recognized. Uh, we we've had millions of views of tributaries but you know i'm still waiting for that phone call from which i know is never going to happen but you know a phone call from some big studio saying you know what you know the film kind of sucked, but i really like the storyline you want to sell the script or you know something like that um, but you know i i, I know that's never going to happen but that's not why we did it you know you, nowadays if you're a filmmaker like you and i you you're just doing it for the pure love of it. That's yeah. it, plain and simple. You you can't I- ever expect to make any kind of money if you tributaries never went to any film festivals because I remember when the beer festivals first started. You know, you would get a, a big trophy for the best Pilsner beer and the best. You know, I don't think IPA was even a term back then, but you know, they only give out a few trophies. You yeah. know, now in racing. We have like 50-some classes. So there's only 100 drivers sometimes at a race. So it's almost like everybody gets a trophy. Well, now at the beer conventions and at the film conventions, everybody gets a trophy. Uh, You're paying your 100 bucks or whatever for whatever film festival, and there's probably every weekend there's probably a dozen all over the country, And if you go internationally, there's probably 20. Or more every weekend, and they have all these different categories. So you're going to pay your money. You're going to get an honorable mention. You can put up a little thing, where it might even be the best film under ten thousand dollars. But whatever. I just went straight to Amazon, and and begged and pleaded and whatever. Um, so I never I never played that that game, um, mm-hmm. and would that have made any difference? No. <laughs> no the i I, i'm waiting for any of our local filmmakers in pittsburgh and there's a lot of them to actually make it big Uh, and 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 so far in the in in like the five years that i've been in the community as a filmmaker no one's broken out uh there's a few people that are more talented than i am that. You'd hope to be able to break out, but then if you go into music, uh, there's so many wonderful Pittsburgh musicians that I can't believe they haven't. No one, no one's heard of them in California, these guys are amazing, and the songwriting is incredible. Um, but to break out, it's music. You know, the music industry—you don't get paid anything for your music anymore, and you know, filmmaking is pretty much the same thing. So I'm really rooting for people to break out, but so far in the five years, no, no one has,
0: you know, as, as you're saying that the, the thought occurs to me, I think what it means to, to break out is going to be different in about 10 years. actually, I would say it's different now yeah. and, and and I'm going to, I'm going to go back to something Harrison Smith said Um he talks about there's there's a there's a table that some directors get to sit at. You know, your James Cameron's, your Steven Spielbergs, Christopher Nolan's, those guys. They they sit at a table. I think that there are actually multiple tables that people get to sit at. Um, and 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 I think Hollywood looks different today, movies look different today, distribution looks different today. I mean, everything has changed. The, the face of movies has changed completely. I think what it means to make it is, 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 is going to be different, and it is different. I, I think that... Instead of you, instead of, you know, someone being Spielberg, I think you're going to have circles of filmmakers, you know, that, that I, th- I think you're going to have, you know, like, like the independent circle, you know, and you're going to have your celebrities in the independent circle, and then you're going to have the mainstream Hollywood circle, and of course, you're going to have the big names there, and, you know, and maybe the aspiration is to make it, you know, to the, the Hollywood circle, but, but I don't know, I kind of, I kind of think we're in this renaissance because everything looks so different, because distribution looks so different, I, I think you're going to see more circles. And it may even get more grassroots than that. It may be even on the community level. You know, you're, you're going to have your local celebrities and, and it may, I don't know, it, it may get more tribal, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, that, uh, that's actually well put. That, that's what's happening in Pittsburgh right now. Uh, I could spend three years of my life again to make another film uh, and to not make much money out of it. Uh, I could probably do a much better job than what I did. But, uh, you know, I would – there are people out there that are more talented than I am, so I'm investing in their films. Uh, uh, I'm a producer uh, for a new film that's going to start shooting in Pittsburgh very shortly uh, called Wolf Hollow, and it's a werewolf film, uh, and it has one of the bigger budgets that a local filmmaker has had in a while and uh and i think there's a there, uh, there's a humorous uh part of this you know i, I picture american werewolf in london kind of thing mm. uh, which was an incredible film the way landis pulled that off with the the mix of humor and irony and and mm. and suspense and you know, that, that that's almost a perfect film uh and i i think uh, wolf hollow is going to Gonna kind of be like that. I, I I invested in not invested, donated because you're never gonna get your money back. Into uh Jesse Hutchins uh, is a filmmaker in Pittsburgh, and he did uh, um, a film a short called "Done Waiting," and then he just did "Done Waiting too and uh, that premiered at a local theater in Pittsburgh, and it it's actually shot really well. So uh, I think uh, you know that that's a much better. Film put those two together; it's much better film than Plan 9 from Outer Space or any of those films. But, but there wasn't much. If you could shoot a film, you had distribution somewhere, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if anybody's ever going to see. Done waiting. Uh, he's going to make a third version too, which I'll invest in as well. Um, but I'm I'm trying to. Um, be involved with local filmmakers because guess what they, they, you know, I get to be part of the film. I get to go to the table reading. uh, I get to be an extra, you know, and, uh, I can be on the set. I can be involved. I feel like I'm part of the community. I go home at the end of the day and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to edit. I don't have to look at footage. I don't have to do any of that stuff. So I just kind of have fun. That's why I love being an extra on all the big films that come into town. Talk about, there was one question that we were talking about where, you know, what uh, an uh, an upcoming filmmaker, what books should they read or what kind of things should they, what they should do. They should... uh, I went back to school uh, to learn filmmaking at age 64. So I was triple the age of everybody else in my class. Uh, but of course, I'm the only one that did a feature-lane film that ended up on Amazon. Uh, and of course, the, almost the entire crew were uh, l- last semester students and recent grads and the one professor. Uh, so you were
0: you were in film school with a feature already on Amazon?
1: No, no, I hadn't. been. I, I learned about
0: film. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay,
1: made it. Yeah, I shot Tributaries in 2019. Uh, from what I learned, because I finished the classes up right before that, so I learned all of that, and I used all the resources at the school to be. That's how I made it for such a low budget. They all donated. Um, uh, okay. You know but uh, so the the pittsburgh community you know we're all trying to support each other and like you said there's a circle there and and we we all get along and we all root for each other and we're all in each other's films um but if you're if you're an up-and-coming filmmaker you need to be an extra on a big feature or a big tv show uh just go there people will Tell you what to do. You go through wardrobe. You get to see exactly how a film is made right in front of you. you. Don't have to bother going on YouTube. You don't need any of that stuff. That's helpful how to operate a camera and stuff like that. But you get on a bunch of sets. You learn how a set is run, everything everybody does, and that's what every filmmaker should do. You get on as many sets as you can. And then, of course, they pay you. You get paid, you know, a couple hundred bucks a day. A lot of times, to, to, to have fun, you know.
0: That's really cool. I, I actually, I don't, I don't think I've heard anybody give that advice before. That's that's really good. Just just be around it. it's the same
1: thing as you know, book learning. And I always found out all through college, you learn all this stuff. Uh, but then when you actually go to your internship or you start your first job. That's when you start learning at an incredible rate. So, when you're on the set, I stood there and watched David Fitchner for two days run a set and watched what everybody else did. And, you know, I I didn't need to go to film school to learn that. I I got to watch him. Uh, Mm -hmm. The best directors ever, you know, seven, that was the Zodiac. Some great films. And, of course, the Mindhunter series is really well done. And that's pretty original. The beginning Mm -hmm. of forensic psychology to try and uh, solve crimes. Mm -hmm. The FBI started that back in the 70s. Now profilers are everywhere. So Mm -hmm. to come up with the idea of making a film to interview serial killers to kind of learn how they think on a forensic psychiatric level to maybe prevent or solve other, other crimes by people like that. and
0: So. Or even prevent it by seeing the traits in people and maybe, maybe being, being able to stop it.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: That's a, it's a great idea. It's a great idea for show.
1: Original. That was a pretty original script. And I, I love being a part of that. So,
0: so let's, let's talk, let's talk about tributaries. Um, where did the idea for that script come from? I was,
1: uh, the same way I've had, you know, with a book that we wrote, Who We Were, uh, I, I had a dream. You, you hear that a lot with the musicians on how to write a song. Uh, and I, I, that never happened to me with music, but I had this dream. I don't remember exactly what it was. And then, and then I thought about some things, and and, uh, and then you just start writing. Uh, the, the best way to write a script is to just sit down and start writing it. If you don't have the the format, you know, for script writing, which is what is that
0: front front page? I don't remember. Oh, I don't remember. um, no, <laughs> did you not say anything I could tell you? I use, I use a program called Highland. There's final draft. Uh, final, I think uh, the most popular one. Yeah. Final,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that doesn't take long to learn that. And, and you know, you start using that and then, and then, uh, and then for me, you you actually can kind of see what's going on, and then you're trying to keep up with that by typing what you're seeing in your head. So, um, and uh, so we, uh, my wife and I, wrote the script, and we sent it around to some people to to look at it, to kind of maybe flesh it out a little bit. Um, and uh, and then we kind of, the one thing that my wife and I are really strong with is organizing. We, we know how to get everything organized. Uh, we didn't waste any time when we were on the set. Um, when I was writing tributaries, I kept in mind, you know, I'm not going to uh, put in a, a car crash. Uh, because, uh, you know, my one friend who was in the one focus group said, Man, this movie is boring. There's no action. Nothing's happened. Why didn't you just like crash a car? And I said, Ray, uh, you going to donate your car for, for that crash? I mean, how, what, how are we going to do that? Pay for the insurance, pay for the stunt, man. <laughs> push a car over a cliff. Other Ray, did you you remember Alice's Restaurant? You, you, you push a car off a cliff. You got to go get the car. You know, you're breaking a bunch of laws there. You know, no, I'm not. I can't. There's no budget to show a car crash. So as I'm typing it, I'm thinking, well, they're going to be at a bar. Well, I own property, and I lease it to the Pittsburgh Sports Bar. By, by the way, best wings in town, which is I repeat like five times on the script. Anyhow, so you know, I figured, okay, well, we can shoot at the bar. I own the property. They're not going to say no. you know. And then we shot scenes in our house. You know, so I'm thinking in my head as, as I'm writing, where can we shoot this scene? So I'm being very practical uh, as I write it. And uh, I think there were a couple of things that ideas I had that I had to dump because how are we going to how are we going to shoot that? You know, there's no budget for it. Uh, so, you, you know, you, you, you get that idea and you kind of flesh it out. And then, uh, you know, the different locations, like like I said, there were there were things that we had access to. Uh, the, and and the, the final thing was Comic-Con. Uh, I, I had it all written. It was that, that's where the, the couple meets in the beginning. And I was thinking, well, I'm probably going to have to change that to another venue because they're not going to let us film at Comic-Con. And, and people ask me all the time, how did you get them? We were the only production company ever allowed to film at Comic-Con. How did you get them to do that? Well, the ownership had just changed, which I didn't know. Um, I'd been a vendor there many years. I'd been to Comic-Con a lot anyhow. Uh, and the answer to the question is: you ask. If you never ask, you, you'll never you'll never know if they'll say yes. I asked. I referenced my IMDb page. I sent them a link. On paper, I look like somebody. You know, I'm not just some guy. You know, uh, uh, if you look on IMDb, uh, I've got acting credits. I've got writing credits. I've got all these interesting credits. So they looked at me. I looked legit, and we negotiated some stuff. I didn't have to pay them a dime. So when, as soon as I heard yes from them, the pressure was on to make sure I get all these other locations. So uh, yeah, then then you just kind of you know you never shoot anything in order. But it took a it took about ten months from the uh, table reading until the final scene. And, uh, and being set in springtime, uh, that, that proposed a problem because um, the trees look different in the fall than they do in spring, and we were shooting out of order. I remember we, there, there's a scene in the parking lot at Comic-Con when Rosie, the, the Jessica character, played by, played by Rosie Coster, she shows up, and for a flashback, she, there's an empty parking lot. And she's sad, and then all of a sudden, the parking lot is full with people waiting in line for Comic Con. That's where she met Jeff, the love of her life, and everything. You know. Well, to shoot that scene, that that was the first scene was shot in spring. The last scene was shot in October. And that tree, that focus is the focus of it. I had to line the camera up so that tree was in the exact location uh, because you can't just film an empty parking lot and say okay everybody from comic-con get in the ceiling you know we couldn't do that so they were Mm -hmm. and we got that tree in place and the leaves were still there and they were still green and i happened to drive by there like a week later and they had all fallen off so that was the last possible wow and we could have gotten that shot and that was an important shot for me you know to to see her reminisce about you know her, her love, Jeff, you know, uh, so it showed the empty parking lot and then it morphed flawlessly, really, to a scene where everybody's Comic-Con and waiting in line. So, you know,
0: that and that was, sounds just just to my audience that doesn't make films, what he's describing may sound simple, but it's really not. Um, con- continuity between shots like that especially if you're trying to establish the passing of time that's that's not easy yeah. it's 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 not easy
1: it's hard uh, to just to line that up um and uh you know there there were times when uh, there, we were all waiting down at the sports bar at seven o'clock in the morning and we got a call from rosie's husband uh who's Rosie is great in this film, by the way. Her acting is incredible. She should have been paid a million dollars for what she did, but she donated her time. Uh, but we're all waiting in the parking lot, and we even had another location that day. We had parked a car and a space to reserve it because we were going to use that later. And her husband calls, and she's in the hospital. So what are you going to do? That, that we couldn't shoot anything. We couldn't shoot around her. She... She's in almost every scene. So Mm -hmm. just had to give it up for a day. I bought everybody breakfast, and we all went home. You know, what what can you do? So, uh, and uh, I'm sure it's like that where you are trying to make a film. There are no actors in Pittsburgh that are typical Pittsburgh people uh, that actually do it for a living. Everybody has a job. So you have to shoot evenings. You have to shoot weekends. And to get everybody's schedule lined up, uh, the guy that that played Tyler, um, he, you know, he, had, he has dark hair and he's in that intense scene at the end where he and Jessica are in the car and they're kind of arguing back and forth. That was 18 pages of script that they memorized. 18 pages of script between the two of them uh, in that scene. That, that was amazing.
0: But- Do you remember how many takes
1: that scene was? I couldn't do it all in one take. I I couldn't do all 18 pages. I had to break it up. So there were about four or five takes for like the first third, the second third. And so it was probably about 15 takes dividing it all up. And then putting it together was, you know, the fact you have really good actors and you have some good takes to choose from, you know, that, that's, that's always a blessing. So I had that, but, um, the, the Tyler character, uh, Connor, he actually got a job uh, on uh, doing a play, and he had to dye his hair uh, blonde. Well, you can't. So we couldn't use him until the play. We had to shoot around all the scenes he was in because you can't be brown hair one day and blonde the next Scene, and then the scene after that, he's back to his dark hair, and then he's blonde again. So he, we had to wait until the play was over, and then he dyed his hair back, and and then we went on from that. So those are, you know, those are some of the challenges when you're shooting yeah. with people that have jobs. Or Rosie had to go to Philadelphia to be with her dad, um, so that that weekend was gone. You know, so that was the hard part getting all the camera crew, audio. Me, my wife, the, you know, all the other stuff. A friend of ours had a pontoon boat. Who was our acting coach, and he let us use the pontoon boat, so we shot scenes there. Brenda was six, so she couldn't make it there. Uh, she's she's most, mostly the script supervisor. So there's a, you know, there's just a lot that goes into it. And when you're shooting a short, you can do it in a weekend. This is an hour and forty one minutes long, and and that's mm-hmm. after cutting twenty minutes out of it. Uh, and I can guarantee you I'm the only Pittsburgh filmmaker that has done this. Uh, because I, I clearly have an ego, but I'm not stupid. Uh, so we had five different focus groups of about five or six people. And we would, I showed no music. I showed, these were all my friends, elementary school people that I knew from Facebook. So watch this film and give me your feedback. So and then it would, I'd cut a couple minutes off and then it would go to the next focus group, five or six more people, cut a few more minutes out, what they didn't like. I had a scene in there which was my favorite scene and uh, there was a film out several years ago that won an Academy Award called Roma. And nowadays we have we have no attention span, even me at my age, where I used to have an attention span. Watching television, I don't. Even on HGTV stuff, the camera's always moving a little bit out of time, the Roma thing. So I had this scene where the camera wasn't moving. It was fixed. And uh, the two actors, uh, Rosie and Connor, uh, he rescues her and brings her to his house and they walk in the door of uh, the downstairs, which is our house. And then he forgets his keys and he has to go back out and get his keys in his car no no his phone he forgot his phone so i had the fixed camera on rosie for an uncomfortable period of time to make the audience feel uncomfortable and she looked uncomfortable i was uncomfortable editing it and and then he comes back in because she's staying at uh, overnight at a, a house that she's not familiar with he comes back in and then they 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 walk back up but the camera doesn't move it was designed to make people uncomfortable. Well, the focus group was uncomfortable <laughs> and, they, and they didn't like the scene. They said if there, if there was more action in the film, I probably could have pulled it off, but that was my favorite scene and pff, I had to cut it.
0: Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah.
1: That's, yeah. That,
0: that's a really great directing technique. I wouldn't have thought to do something like that. Yeah. Rosie, yeah. Rosie really did great. Give a, a fantastic performance. Believe it or not, my two favorite performances in that film Rosie and then Amy Lynn Elliott, the, yeah. the woman that played the psychologist. She was fantastic.
1: That was my part. I wrote that part for me. I'm the psychologist. I wrote that for me. And then she came to audition and went at the table reading and we both looked and said, no, she's got, that's it. She's got the part. Yeah, she's, and you know, she had, uh, she was only there for about four hours. That was the first scene we shot. Was that scene, and it was in really in our one in our one office. And she didn't really have time to, you know, she's a SAG actress. She didn't have time to really look at a lot of the script, and 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 I cut that scene in half. There was a lot of dialogue. It, that scene droned on, and it's still a little boring if that you know, although I don't find it boring, but but anyhow, there's a lot of dialogue and and at, at some point we just gave her a notepad like a psychologist would have taking notes and her script was there. So she'd look down and move her pad and then there's <laughs> and there's the script so she could, yeah, she uh, yeah, she did great. That was great. And now that made a lot of people uncomfortable watching an actual psychotherapy, Session, which I wrote as a psychotherapist. So I know what kind of stuff they're going to be talking about. But it made sense in the context of the story. Oh, yeah. Without that, the you don't understand that, you know, Rosie lost her dad when she was young and she never quite got over that. <clears throat> you know, she's always kind of looking for her dad and other people. And then she loses her <clears throat> loved wife, and And that's why she can't. Some things you just can't get over. Happens to you twice in a row like that, so she's trying to work it out, and um, she's doing the best she can. But I, I challenge anybody to deal with that kind of thing. It, it's hard. So the, it was legitimate therapy that mm. that Amy Lynn Elliott was doing because I'm a therapist, and I and I wrote what a normal therapy session is. When you see a therapy session on in a TV. Uh, series or in a film it's not you'll never see it to be that long they never they that's a long scene they only show you snippets of it um but i wanted i wanted everybody to really see what it was like to try and work at what rosie was dealing with
0: well i'll I'll confess something to you um (laughs) to your credit as an actor when when the the hospital scene it didn't register to me that the ER doctor was you, <laughs> and and it was a convincing hospital room, especially with that nurse, because I I was married to a nurse for four years. She did a she did a, a good job as a nurse. Um, I I actually I, I found myself asking, are they in a real hospital right now? Is that a real? ER doctor, because you you actually played a really convincing doctor. I I believed you were a doctor because it just didn't register to me that it was you that was playing that part. I recognized the guy. I was like, I recognized that guy, and it just didn't register. So to your credit, you did a really great job as an ER doc, well, and that was a really convincing scene. Yeah, I, I
1: I didn't want to edit any of that out. Well, I did. I edited some of it, you know. And that nurse was a nursing student, and and that is Pittsburgh Technical College where we shot a lot of the other scenes where I took my classes, and my wife works at Pittsburgh Technical College, she has for 14 years, but we were able to use the nursing suite, and the only way they would, re- well, they wouldn't let us do it, but uh, they really wanted one of the nursing students to be available to be there while we used the equipment, you know, because we don't know how to use some of that equipment, and of course, then I, I said to her, well, why don't you be the nurse in it, and, and there were some takes that she, as a nurse, She as an actress, no, but she's not an actress. She's, she's a nurse. So, but the, the scenes that I, we did have in there, she, she did a great job for just like, she knew it ahead of time. She was going to be doing it, but yeah, we, uh, and, and Amy, she was on set that day too. So that was a lot of fun. So yeah, it was a, yeah, that was a, that was a, a very fun day because we knew we had, um, plenty of time to shoot that scene you know there wasn't a lot of time constraint
0: for us i'm grateful i got to watch tributaries as a filmmaker because i don't think i would have appreciated it as much without that perspective i I still I, i can't believe you you pulled off a feature of that length for the amount of money that you did i hear you it's it's incredible uh, well, and and to get the drone shots in the beginning. Well, I'm i I've studied film, you know, passively
1: as most people have my whole life, and and I have my favorite filmmakers, and I guess I've kind of drawn drawn on things like that opening drone shot. You know, I, we found a drone guy who only charges like three hundred bucks, and and in my mind, you know, you got the drone going over the water and coming up to the tributary. And then the next thing you know, it kind of fades, and the drone's going over grass. So it goes from kind of waves, you know, ripples in the water to ripples in the grass, and then you know, and I kind of blended those two together, and and that 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 was effective. Uh, and then it goes over the parking lot at the school, you know, that kind of thing. So there were some techniques that that I I've obviously stolen from people that I've that i liked when i've watched films uh like the you know showing the two of them holding hands as they're leaving for their second date and then you see her the next scene is her hand and it's got an ivy it. Yeah. you know so they're holding hands and then it's the same hand and i wish i could have gotten them lined up more perfectly but you know what can you do yeah um, I, I i tried to use some interesting little techniques like that
0: um you yeah. know it's a, it's a great little film, and, and and I really encourage everybody to watch it. I mean, it and and just believe me when I tell you, for the amount of money he spent, what he created is is nothing short of incredible. Right. And, and and actually, um, another thing I want to talk about, the you mentioned to me that the soundtrack had a special story. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I've uh, I've been a big I've been playing guitar forever. My Les Paul is back there. Uh, I probably have about 10 guitars hanging around in the house. So I've been playing since I was like 15 years old. And there's a local band, Christian, they, they, they ended up being a Christian band. It was B.E. Taylor, B.E. Taylor Group. Uh, B.E. put out a whole bunch of uh, Christmas albums, uh, you know, later in his life. But before that, they were like a Journey kind of sounding band. Uh, one of those bands that I can't believe they didn't make it big. Outside of Pittsburgh. These guys were so talented. Well, their guitar players named Rick witowski And he is uh he's like he's like a character. He's like a cartoon character. He's an incredible guitar player. And when he's on stage, he's running around and jumping up and down versus older than me now, you know. Uh but uh I, 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 I ran into him one time, and I told him, you are probably in the top three my favorite guitar players of all time. And he was like, what? You know, no one's ever said that to me. Yeah, you got Jimmy Page and Steve Howe from Yes, and you. And that's because you're really good, uh, technically, and really entertaining. So we kind of uh, maintained, like, email contact from time to time. My wife ran into him one time at the mall, and... He's very identifiable. You like Skunk Baxter from, you know, the Doobie Brothers or uh, Steely Dan. You can. He was on Gutfelt last night too. I think he, you you see that guy, you know who he is. Well, same with same with uh, Rick. So, Brenda, who's six foot one and red hair and thin, you can't. Once you meet Brenda, that's you know you, you'll always know that it's her. So she comes up to Rick and says. You're my husband's favorite guitar player. Will you sign this? So he signs, thank you for asking for my autograph. (laughs) So uh, on a whim, I called him up. He's got a studio in Steubenville, Ohio. All of the Pittsburgh musicians go to have their albums done with him because he's that good technically with everything. And I said, I got this movie uh do you have any original music because it's really hard to find original music uh, i have a lot of musician friends i always wanted to write a song and i know i probably could and, and of course i could have put it in the movie if i wanted to but anyhow he goes yeah let me see what you got so after maybe around the third focus group i had to cut down A little bit. And I had, like every film does, you have placekeepers musically that you put in there. So the opening scene, I had uh, the song Your Move from Yes. Uh, It's what follows I've seen all good people. And then it goes, Uh, into your move. So I had that in the opening scene uh, with the drones and I had Peter Frampton and other things. So he watched that opening scene. He's a big Yes fan. And he goes, I'm on. I'll let me give you some songs. So he gave me a song that he wrote, which which we put in on the boat scene. Uh, And the ending credits is a previously unreleased B.E. Taylor song called The Last Heartbreak. Great song! How could that not be a hit. It's a not only, and, and it was never, never even ended up on an album. But Rick wrote it, and he checked with B's widow, and she said, "Yeah, go ahead." So I got that song, and for the rest of the soundtrack, I went and um, I just found a broker in L.A., uh, uh, and he had about a thousand songs, and I went through and listened to a whole bunch of them, and picked out the other ones that I wanted. And, uh, and then I had to put them in the film. Now I hate editing, um, uh, especially because of audio issues that we had on tributaries and using different cameras and trying to color match them. And I did an okay job. I'd still be doing it right now. if Brenda hadn't hit me in the head a year ago and said, Mike, good enough. Let's go. That's good enough. Uh, but my favorite part was putting in the, the songs because I knew where I wanted them. So there's a scene uh, near the end where it's, it's pretty emotional and uh, the Laurel ca- character in the film studio and uh, Rosie's character, Jessica, they meet and she finds out that Jeff has uh, died, the Laurel character. And they have some pretty good emotional scenes and then they hug at the end of the scene. And I, I wanted the crescendo of the song Breakaway to be right when they hug. So that was easy, you just kind of move it over there. Here's the problem, the, the the scene is this long, but the music is only this long. So I cut it here and I had to open it up, and then in the middle, I got out my acoustic guitar and I kind of matched, it only took a couple takes, I matched kind of what was going on and you can hear it in the background. And then it then it comes back in and builds into crescendo and then they hug and the big part of the music is there. So I had to break it open. And of course, I wanted to do that because I get a music credit on a film. <laughs> so I say,
0: it, it, was, it was so I may talk about you, Mike. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really fantastic soundtrack. I, and and that's a really cool story. I'm, gl- I'm glad you got to tell it. Um, it's, it's older than I am <laughs> not by a whole lot, but it's older than I am. I, I never, never again. Will I ever, that, that's, that was a once in a lifetime experience right there. To me, the story of finding it is as special as the comic itself.
1: Exactly. It's all about the stories.
0: It really is. And g- going back to your soundtrack, um, it, it's cool to, to, I mean, the fact that you're able to put a, a, an unreleased song at the end of your film, yeah, that's, that's so special. And then you've got the story to connect with the artist as well. I mean, you want to, you want them over with a mutual love of the band. Yes. That's such a cool story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I picked all the other songs. They do seem to fit pretty well. And I've been trying to, because I got the songs from a broker uh, I've been trying to reach out to the artist. Her voice is is incredible. I should put the uh, i should I should put the actual songs on like a in Google drive somewhere so people can actually get them. I can't really sell them. i It, it wouldn't be fair. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I paid for the rights to use them. but these people never went far at all and she's got this incredible voice the song breakaway the song hold my heart in your hand she those songs could be hit records right now Uh, but i can't find her her name is karen hassey h-a-s-s-e and i found her on youtube back in 2010 on a couple little snippets in a band called furlough and And I think I did track her down with a a married name at some point on Facebook, and I asked her to be my friend, and and I don't think she ever said yes. I think she just was looking to get out of the music business because, in in honesty, the the music business really sucks. Uh, Worse than the filmmaking business. You can at least get distribution, you know, on some level with your film even if it's youtube but uh she's such an incredible talent she just dropped off the face of the earth so uh, but you should in some of the songs you only hear little bits of them and and i'd really like people to hear the entire thing you know what i'm just going to bring some copies with me to um living dead weekend uh i never did a, a dvd of of tributaries, it's it's free on Amazon, so you know. Um, but I think I'll bring some copies of the, the the soundtrack, just just like the eight songs that that you hear, and you can hear them in their entirety. So I'll find a way to share that with people because they're they're really good songs.
0: If if you ever do a physical release of the film, uh, I, I really think that you guys should do a like an audio commentary. And tell some of the stories that you, that you're telling on here. I think it'd absolutely be worth telling.
1: That, that would be fun. Uh, uh, and we've had a lot of people look at the film, um, but you know, I, the, my my problem is, I I would really want to reshoot a lot of it, but uh, that but uh, won't be possible. Those people have moved on. I'd have to reshoot the whole thing or nothing at all. You know, uh, I I took the best tapes I could find. Uh, Is probably just going to have to, people are saying, well, why don't you do a a director's cut? In all honesty, it's three years of my life. I don't think I'm going to give any more uh, to it. Um, And and I I, I did want to, I had dreams of having it premiere at a local, you know, uh, theater, just like my friend Jesse, who did Done Waiting recently. And. And uh, Massacre, Massacre Academy is uh, Mark Cantu's film that, that he premiered at the Hollywood Theater in, in Mount Lebanon. Uh, and he's the one that's doing Wolf Hollow. But it would have broken my heart if I had a, a small theater and only was able to fill it up halfway. That, that would break my heart. That So I, I just didn't have the, the guts to do that. You know, I, I, you know, it would just. I have I have family members and close personal friends that haven't watched it yet, and that that kind of breaks my heart. You know, how many friends I've been one guy I've been friends with for like thirty years, and he ha- he hasn't watched the film. And he's got Prime. Walt, Walt, watch the film. You know what? Why? Why aren't you? It's. An hour and 41 minutes. If you doze off during it, I don't care. Just watch it. I've had family. I, I had to put, there were two family members that were in town recently for a funeral. And I parked them in front of the TV set, put on tributaries and and left. They said, well, you stole the remote too when you left. I said, no, I, I left the remote, but we had to run an errand. And so they, they finally watched it and they really liked it. But these were family members watch my film you know so i'm appreciative if anybody ever is watching this podcast that has seen the film i appreciate it but but that's why i never had a physical release at a theater i was afraid people weren't going to show up
0: i can understand that anxiety yeah i I definitely can i can respect that and understand that it's 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 absolutely worth watching i mean it, it it, it it is the first movie in a number of years that got me. Like I when 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 Mike just just some behind the scenes for everybody, when Mike told me to to watch the film Appropriation for the podcast, I did. And we were we were chatting on Facebook <laughs> while I was watching it. And I what was it like almost midnight? I sent him a message, I said, You got me with the ending.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's another thing. You know, some of my favorite filmmakers uh, David they're they're all demented people. David Lynch, Cronenberg, you know, I guess a couple of David's there. Uh, you know, obviously Spielberg and Lucas and you know but but I, I like the way you know David Lynch thinks. It's not helping him in the real world, but uh, on film, he he's not only thinking out of the box. The box he's thinking out of isn't even on this planet. Uh, he he has a way, and my best friend hates David Lynch. Um, but, you know, Twin Peaks is probably my favorite TV first season, favorite television show ever. It's just bizarre, well-written. Only Lynch could do something like that. Um, and Cronenberg with Rabid, that was, uh, I think that was a 77 film. I have the movie poster for Rabid that I'm um, bringing. Mm-hmm. Comic uh, to uh, Living Dead Weekend as well. But, uh, you know, Lynch did, uh, um, uh, Cronenberg did a whole bunch of great stuff. Now, his stuff is pretty gory sometimes too. Videodrome, my friend and I saw that, and my friend who hates David Lynch, but he likes, uh, you know, Cronenberg. We talked about the ending of Videodrome for a long time. Uh, And you know what? That's what I was going for. With tributaries, I wanted it to end, and I, I was hoping like two people would watch it together, and then when the movie's over, they'd be looking at each other and saying, "What did, what, what's your take on that? What, what do you think happened? What was, what was going on there?" Because my friend Keith and I, uh, we we saw a video drum in the theater, and when it was over, you know, De- Deborah Harry is in that as well, and we're and we're trying to figure out. What are they getting at? Same with 2001: A Space Odyssey, but the one thing that we, the, the one film that we still talk about now is The Shining. Uh, you know, and 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 I uh, I got a chance to meet Stephen King once, and uh, and it's, it's no secret that he didn't like, you know, the way that film was made. Uh, one of his least favorite adaptations of his works, which I get that, but I love the film. And I had never read the book. so I, I loved the film. And my friend Keith and I we will still talk about the ending of that. You know, and I will go on youtube and and read what other people think. I just like having the mystery of, wait, So he was dead, what was you know the, it was just really fun. and I, I wanted people walking away from tributaries, maybe scratching their head a little bit
0: it It, it catches you off guard. It absolutely does. Like I want to know one of the things, at least I, I, I'm, I'm, I believe what I I saw throughout the film, there were some really subtle visual subtext clues about things going on. You know, there, there was a scene, I'm not going to go into detail about it, you know, there was, there was, you know, this very beginning of the film, there's a scene with Jeff that there's a, there's an audio clue that I think points to what, you know, some of the things uh, and when they're in the bar, the, what's playing on the TV, some of the things playing on there, I felt like were visual subtext a little bit. Like, is that my imagination or were those intentionally put there no, as, they, as well, visual clues?
1: Every Everything was intentional. Right? Okay. <laughs> uh, there were probably plenty of unintentional things, but not when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, kind of clues as to what may come or, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and then maybe some tributes to to some things uh, and other films. So yeah, there was a being able to pull it off is another story. But uh, and and it's interesting. Another really hopefully entertaining story was uh, when we were shooting in in the bar the first time. Uh, So they meet at Comic-Con and then they run into another friend and then they all go to the bar together and they're sitting there. So it's supposed to be Friday night. Well, we shot it Sunday morning and I was very busy and my wife was worried about the script and and everything. We didn't realize that on the television screens was uh, Face the Nation. Well, Face the Nation's on Sunday morning. Well, we were there Sunday morning, but it's supposed to be Friday night. So... Back to the fact that we have no attention span and my DP was always moving the camera a little bit or going in a little bit or coming out just to keep people, because the the film is slow, so you keep you kind of mentally, subliminally locked in a little bit by moving things. I had to take scenes from uh, my documentary called Chasing Giants, which is also on Amazon. Prime. They started charging 99 cents for it for some reason, but so that's cheap. But it's a it's a uh, a documentary, 53 minutes long about the men and women that uh, race cars in automotive hill climbs like Pike's Peak and Mount Washington. You know, closed road, you race your car up as fast as you can go. Formula cars, British cars, every anything you'll see on a weekend. It's amazing. Um, so I did a documentary on that. Uh, so. I thought, you know what? I can kill two birds with one stone. Get in some maybe clues about some stuff. And I went and put my film, there were two different TV sets above them. I put in Chasing Giants there, but because the camera was zooming in and moving out and going left and right, I had to go frame by frame and move it and make it a little bit bigger and make it a little bit up more make it a little bit bigger a little bit bigger so there i don't know how many frames there were but that took like a week to get rid of face the nation and put in uh, chasing giants
0: it it was worth it in the end though because it really is a, a big big visual subtext clue in there that was what when, when i saw that i knew at that point i'm like i'm gonna have to really pay attention to this movie now because it's, it's, he's he's put some stuff in here to kind of hint. Not that, yeah,
1: not many people. <laughs> well, I,
0: I did, do you remember I sent you a message about it? I in fact, I mean, it was when I saw that, that's when I messaged you. am like, wait a minute, <laughs> you're putting some clues in here. And I think I did call that out specifically. <laughs> so yeah. so definitely, de- when you watch this movie, definitely pay attention because he's, he's, he's sprinkled some clues in there to kind of tell you what's going on. But it, I, I'll tell you right now, it doesn't matter how slick you think you are, the ending is going to get you. You're not yep. gonna see it coming. That was my... good. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. I, I really, I really hope everybody takes a minute to watch it. It's, it's, it's a great film. And, and again, just, just from a filmmaker, and this is like the twelfth time I've said this, but from a filmmaker perspective, I cannot believe you pulled this off for what you, what you did. The, the cost. Well, it was
1: a lot of work on my wife's and my part, but uh, it was really uh, all the actors, uh, pretty much dedicating their their time uh and and the way you can get actors to do that uh is with a good script and uh you know i'm apologetic for a lot of the film but not the script the script is very good Um, Mm -hmm. wish i could have done it better justice but the script uh, the dialogue is very good Uh, it went through all those focus groups to make sure everything was just right Uh, with what we had you know we can only use what we have but the actors did a great job um, and, and there was some adversity uh, the The one actress who you see in the beginning bar scene uh, she plays a character named sarah she was supposed to be the character that later meets up with jessica at the pittsburgh film institute which is the uh, you know uh, pittsburgh technical college uh, she's supposed to be the one that meets up with her, but then the the actress uh, whose name is Jessica, uh, she ended up with a, a, a another gig in in the Steubenville area, uh, it was an, it was a play, and she couldn't be there for the weekend that we were shooting that scene when uh, the. The character, Jessica, played by Rosie, comes back to the film school a year later just to just to walk around and get a sense of, you know, Jeff's life back then. And uh, the, there's a woman, Delaney Hathaway, who played this character named Laurel. That character didn't exist in the original script. I had to write that with maybe uh, maybe a week's notice. Uh, and Delaney stepped in at the last minute to play those scenes. She's an excellent actress and director as well, uh, but I I, I, I I couldn't use the script I had because they didn't know each other, uh, because they were going to say, "Oh, I remember you. We met at the bar a year ago." You know, I, I couldn't do that because she couldn't. The original actress couldn't make it, so Delaney stepped in with as a different character, and it actually worked out even better than I and I read it, wrote it in the first place because the Delaney acted completely devastated when she was, Rosie was telling her stuff. Uh, It it just worked out really well. So, you know, their dedication is what made that film.
0: Do you, do you have any other big features in in, in, coming down the pike anytime soon?
1: I don't really, I, I would have to write it. And, uh, Right now, I'm very much enjoying being involved in other people's projects because there's some really talented people out there in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, I can't wait to to see what Jesse Hutchins and Brian Safonis is going to be up to next. Uh, "Done Waiting 2" is uh, it hasn't been released anywhere, but uh, that's actually really well done. It's it's about a guy that uh, is a former cop and his wife gets kidnapped. And the cops aren't doing anything, so he takes matters into his own hands. It sounds like your typical plot. It is kind of a plot you've seen before, uh, but a little bit of a twist going on there. And, of course, uh, we'll follow. Uh, I I know what the script looks like now uh, from the table reading, and uh, it's going to be fun. Like I said, a pretty decent-sized budget. For for the Pittsburgh area for a local filmmaker, they have wolf suits that they got. They've been testing lenses. You know, we just got the whole um, uh, shoot schedule, eighteen pages worth. Just got it today, so that's going to be fun, and that's going to be a horror film. So I, I, I yeah,
0: that I I actually realized last night, and I, I I and maybe it was a couple of days ago. So I, I didn't realize um, Scott Ward and uh, Angel Bradford are, are friends of mine on Facebook, um, and I, I didn't realize I was like I was kind of connected with it, that project in that way. Like I, I'm, I'm friends with them on Facebook, and I'm friends with you on Facebook, um, and I, I didn't realize you were involved with Wolf Hollow until I think it was yesterday. I was like, oh wait a minute. Mike, Mike's involved with that. And, and I, and I know Scott and I know Angel, <laughs> they're, they're Facebook friends. So that, I thought it was kind of neat that I'm, I'm actually, I'm not connected to the project, but I know, I know other people that are involved in that.
1: Yeah. I'm a producer on it. And, uh, so, uh, uh hopefully I'll, uh, I'll be in, i also like being an extra. If I'm going to be on the set, hanging around, you might as well, you know, have me walk by or something. At least I don't need any lines, too much pressure, you know? Uh, it's funny, I wrote all those lines for me as a doctor, and guess who couldn't remember his lines that day when we were shooting? Um, so uh, acting is an art, and I am not. Uh, I never went to acting school, but I'd really like to be involved in other people's projects. So that's what I'm going to continue to do. Um, there's another project coming up. Uh, there's a table reading in a couple weeks. The film is called CAF, K-H-A-F. Uh, first thing I tried to do was talk them out of the name, because I'm, I was saying, you know, people are going to be saying, "Oh, oh, I saw this great film. What's it called? Calf, like you're like a cow, or uh, you know, I don't." Uh, but they're committed to the name, so you know, I I I put in my two cents. Uh, it's got the same great actors that uh, Pittsburgh's got. About you know a dozen really good actors, uh, and when I saw who they had on board. I I wanted to donate to the project as well, so I'm a executive producer on that as well. So that should be fun. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing. Um, right now I'm um, I'm doing less work and just uh, trying to help out other uh, filmmakers that are local. Uh, and I, I really kind of wanted to jump on board of the other remake that they're doing of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I guess they're shooting that in Kentucky somewhere. Uh, the guys are just really committed to doing that film, but I, I tried to tell them, you know, good luck. I wouldn't touch, I wouldn't touch that title. I don't care what kind of script or budget you gave me. It's like sacrilegious in a way. Is mm-hmm. kind of the way I tried to approach them with it, and then I tried to tell them, you know, if you shoot some scenes in Pittsburgh and let people be zombies. You, people might be more accepting of it
0: well nobody's um, done it right since Tom Tom's the only person that's done it right yeah right
1: and and he didn't have a good time you know but it came out it came out good uh, but it uh, there there's just certain things that I think you should leave alone I, I don't know it, it it's i think it would be really hard to do and and I was I was looking at being involved in that, but it is a little further away for me. Um, And I I know they're going to do a little bit different of a twist for it, but just like when Pontiac reintroduced the GTO, um, you know, 2004 to 2006, that was a great car. I really liked it, but they should never have called it the GTO. In Australia, it was called the Holden. They should have just called it the Holden. It would have been a different car. It would have stood on its own. It's a great car, uh, but it's not the GTO that you remember from the, from the late sixties. So that mm. was a big mistake by Pontiac, which is why I don't think they should have named it Night of the Living Dead. They should have named it I don't know Calf, <laughs> I don't know something something else. Uh, and I think they'd have more success. I, I, I don't know. I, I hope they prove me wrong. You never know. I, I-
0: or yeah i i'm with you i wouldn't mind seeing a, a a decent reboot but it's just every single time someone does it, it it's just never done well you know I, th- I think the intentions are good well maybe well I, I don't know i can't the ones i have seen i don't think the intentions are wrong but they're they're not good um and and if you're if you're gonna take on something legendary like that you know i i, I, I wouldn't even try it i'm with you i just wouldn't even try it no,
1: I, I would. I, I just would be. I wouldn't feel worthy. Yeah. You know? And I've got an ego, but uh, I, <laughs> I, I would not feel worthy to. You to know your it. limits. Yeah, absolutely.
0: How would you? How would you say the the uh, the Pittsburgh film community is today compared to it was in the '70s and the '80s?
1: It was non-existent in the '70s and '80s you couldn't make a film the equipment was too expensive and and you had to be very talented to operate those cameras and to and to edit just watch some of those you know footage of those editors editing these films and splicing and so that was a ser- that, that was hard to do now anybody anybody can do it your your iphone can can shoot really good footage as they show you in the ad which is accurate anybody can do it. Most people have a sense inside of them as to how a film is supposed to look and how Mm -hmm. it's supposed to progress and a plot, you know, so anybody can really do it. But back then, there were only a couple people. It was a very small community back then. uh, Because there, and in fact, a lot of them ended up working in Hollywood, they would fly out and fly back. You know, Tom's had an incredible career. Uh, if we were still friends, I'd probably be in a Quentin Tarantino movie by now. You know, he got to be Quentin Tarantino. My God, if I if I had told him back then that, dude, you're going to. Well, I don't know if Quentin Tarantino was around then, But anyhow, you were going to you were going to meet this guy and he's going to ask for you. Every film that he does, he's going to go, I want Tom Savini in this film. You know, your filmmakers have favorites that you'll mm-hmm. see. You know, Kyle McLaughlin and David Lynch. He's in all of David Lynch's stuff on some level. You know, you have these people. You trust them. They're good. You, you get along with them because I'm sure there's people, uh, I haven't re- really run into it yet, but, you know, that you just can't get along with. You just... Polar opposites. So you have someone you like to work with. Why not? You, you bring Tom. Tom's in and he's in Django Unchained in a party. Isn't like every newer Tarantino movie. Ask Tom to come out and and act. And Tom's a great actor.
0: Yeah, he really is. Have you have you heard his stories? Some of his set stories that, that uh, from the Quentin Tarantino so, films.
1: Yeah, I've uh, yeah I've I've seen some stuff, but but
0: yeah no, I'd like to know more. Oh, there's some great like uh, YouTube. uh, There's some great stuff. He he told this one story when they were doing Django Unchained. There's a scene where there's a a a man gets ripped apart by these dogs, and he's and he's you know he's missing. He's supposed to be. I I think he loses his arm in the scene, or at some point in the scene they're trying to hide his arm, and they just couldn't get it right. So eventually, you know, Tom didn't want to really get involved. You know, he didn't want to kind of overstep where he was in the production, so he just didn't say anything. But eventually, he kind of, you know, says, "Hey, you know, why don't you guys try to, you know, just bury his arm in the ground and and, and film it that way?" And they they did it, and the scene worked, and they it was a take, and boom, they moved on. And um, so uh, a little bit later on, Quentin comes by and hands Tom five dollars. And so apparently, on on the set of his movies, if you contribute. In in some way like that, if you help solve a problem, you get five dollars. <laughs> so Tom's got a five dollar bill. That's awesome. And it, yeah, and 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 there's a funnier one from that set too, where he fell asleep, and uh, they they have a they have. A, I'll let you. I'm not, I, I don't want to talk about it on the podcast. It's a little inappropriate. But they have they have a tradition. If you fall asleep on a, a Quentin Tarantino set, they they take your picture with a an object. Yeah, and they, right. they have this board. They post it on. So. <laughs> That's awesome. You know
1: you it's got it fun when you're uh, when you're on the set especially you know when you're making a low budget film like mine you got you got to have fun I, i've been i've been threatening people to that i was going to put out a blooper thing i, I guess that if i get bored enough i will but there, the opening scene a uh, tim bendick uh, plays himself as the announcer at comic-con he is the announcer at comic-con i grabbed him and i said you want to do this? And he said, awesome. So he's the one that comes out. Oh, hello, Comic-Con. Uh, for the first time, I'd like to you know, introduce Jules Mendez. And he goes off. That's his, that's his line, right? He comes out. He forgets his name. You know, His own name. He's playing himself. You know, I'm Tim Betty. He forgets his name. Uh, for that one scene... I think we shot that on the stage probably seven or eight times before you got it right, and and I've been threatening him. When I see him, i was going to put out a blooper thing. It's going to be you. And there's times when Rosie breaks out into a dance after a, you know, really uh, intense scene, and then I say cut, and then she's like dancing, but the camera's still going, you know. So I've been threatening to put out a you know thing of bloopers. But the, you know, I like.
0: I'm going to say this. And and call me crazy. There's one thing missing behind you, and it's a physical copy of your movie. I, I, I think you should go for it. Be even even if it's not the vision that you set out for, even if it's not as good as you would have liked to like to have been. And it's a fantastic film, just just for all for what it's worth. This is this was your movie. You made a feature. And if you never make another feature again, I think I think it's worth it to have You're this thing a blue ray. Yeah, Blu-ray, DVD, like like yeah, you, you I mean, should it, absolutely uh, do a physical copy.
1: Yeah, Chasing Giants, I I I, uh, I have Blu-rays and and regular DVDs of Chasing Giants. So I I got a guy, I know a guy, you know, and and I know I can do it really cheaply. Actually, it'd be kind of fun to have one in my hand. But okay, I don't see a copy of Chasing Giants anywhere. But anyhow, I do have a, I do have a DVD. Of that, And, of course, that's on Amazon, like I said, for 99 cents. So that's, my one good friend says that Chasing Giants is actually a really good documentary. And I said, well, what, what about tributaries? Oh, yeah, I like tributaries. So, in other words, he, he really thinks Chasing Giants is, is better. Uh, and he might be right. And Brenda and I shot Chasing Giants, just the two of us, with cannon t five DSLR cameras. Uh, we had a we had a uh, a crane. We had really nice lenses, but it was only Brenda and I that shot that. And our friend Glenn, who I just saw is trying to call me. Uh, he uh, we had him do audio. That was it. That was the crew for for chasing giants. And of course, that's the kind of racing that I do. So I had all access to to everything and um and there are a couple there are a couple wrecks in there but it, 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 you know if you're looking at a racing film and you're looking for car wrecks it, that it's you're that, watching it
0: for the wrong reason yeah,
1: <laughs> it's a it's an interview kind of thing men and women that talk about what it's like to do with that and the family that we have uh, for hill climbing so anyhow yeah okay i'll uh, i'm gonna look into uh i've got a really nice. Uh, uh, copy uh, that I have that I can get over to my buddy and he's so reasonable for doing the, the DVD. So yeah, I think I'll, I'll look for that. Go
0: all out. Do do the audio commentary, do the blooper reels as far as special features go all out with it.
1: Yeah, it should be fun.
0: I'll totally buy it. Let me know if you do it, let me know. I'll buy a copy. Yeah. But I want you to, I want you to sign it though. <laughs> so any you chance you, you're going to be at the living dead weekend I won't be able to make it. I, yeah. I, I wish I could. I, I, I would love to make it, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to, unfortunately. It's going to be, it's going to be killer though. I, I'm, I'm definitely take a lot of pictures and plaster them on Facebook.
1: I, I can't wait to show Greg Nicotero. Hey, Greg, see that? That's, that's you. Like, that's like the 20 year old you, you were like standing around Tom was showing you what to do, you know, the, so you know, have you uh, talked to him
0: since Day of the Dead? Have you have you kept in contact with him at all? I never really talked to him much. Uh,
1: he he did my makeup, so we had a conversation, whatever that was. Actually, it was him talking, and me. You know, I couldn't move, uh, and we probably ran into each other on the set a few times, and we were joking and everything. When he had ripped the head off, and he was standing there, and I'm taking his picture, smile, Greg. You know, uh, but uh, I didn't realize who I didn't make the connection that, oh, Greg, I knew the name Greg Nicotero, and when I saw Walking Dead, which I started watching from day one, oh my gosh, he's just, and you know, he he, he had tried to talk Tom into going with him to to L.A. to, to start a special makeup effects kind of thing. But Tom had a daughter, Leah, so he really couldn't, he didn't want to take her out of school. Bloomfield, where Tom grew up, is a incredible close-knit italian community um you'll find stuff like that in the boston suburbs and stuff but pittsburgh there's some really close-knit greek communities and uh, you know and italian communities uh, so it's, it's just really uh, old school close-knit kind of things so he didn't want to pull her out of school and then one thing led to the next and we got walking dead so good good for greg man that's that's, that's amazing that what he went from almost like a hobby, you know, being on set, but Tom Alan Ormsby kind of taught Tom a lot of of what you know he was doing. Uh, he worked with him. Oh, I'm trying to think back. Children shouldn't play with dead things was Alan's thing. Tom, I think he worked with him.
0: Death uh, dream. Death
1: dream. Yeah. 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 That's right. Uh, I actually have, sorry, uh, a uh, an original one sheet of children shouldn't play with dead things that will be coming to uh, Living Dead Weekend as well. And wow! Never seen that poster, but it's a it's a comical rendition of them.
0: Yeah, it's it's got Orville
1: and the, yeah, it, it's, it's creep showish looking kind of thing, but the characters, you know, that's that's an. I'll, I'll miss that, but you know, I'm going to put a reasonable price on that one as well.
0: <laughs> so, is your house pretty much a museum? Like, if if I were to walk in there right now, I mean, is there is it just full of movie memorabilia?
1: Not really. Uh, there you'll see a lot of movie posters, uh, but we live in an A-frame. Uh, it's a three-story A-frame, three full baths, uh, so it's it's big, but an A-frames like that. And I don't know if you can see the walls, but they're like that. You, you can't hang a picture on a wall that would be like that. You know, uh, the pitch is so steep, the one roofer told us, you know, you don't really need shingles on this thing because it'll never leak because it's so it's such a steep pitch. Um, so you can't really hang stuff. Uh, what you can't see is a, a big banner that's probably – 6 foot long uh, tributaries banner with the cast signing it. uh, That I have off to the side here. So where you see seeing me right now, this is where I do all my writing. This is the loft and I look out. All windows on the A frame is what I when I can look out and see. So I have my big Mac 27 inch screen here that I use for all the editing and then I just look over here and there's just great view of you know our house is kind of carved out of the woods but um i do have uh, a place in the, uh, the basement that uh i've got a whole bunch of stuff so yeah that's that's pretty good but i, I want it to all go to good homes because like i said i don't want my wife to have to deal with it when i'm when i'm gone she's not going to know what to do with it uh, so now is the time i'm 68 I, I sold one of my race cars recently because I am reti- retired from hill climbing. It's really dangerous. I've wrecked that car. I, I've wrecked several cars. The, the opening scene in Chasing Giants is somebody else driving my car, a friend of mine who I let drive my car. It goes upside down, right? In the opening scene. <laughs> uh, wow. it, it's dangerous. A friend of mine is in a wheelchair uh, from a wreck a couple years ago. He's getting better, but it's been a while. And uh, he's actually in tributaries. He's the ticket taker. And then right after he takes the Jeff's ticket at Comic-Con, um, he was hill climbing, and he's a great driver. And he's as good a driver or better than me. And uh, he wrecked, and he's still not completely recovered. So being 68, I figured that's it. So I've sold a, I've sold a race car. I still have seven cars left, but, but you know, I'm gradually... <laughs> gonna thin the herd
0: so I'm gonna is, it, not- it, is it yeah. hard to stay away from it though
1: no i actually started to get frightened after vince hurt himself and another friend of mine who was at bonneville uh in one of those rocket cars he ended up in a wheelchair and he's still and for he's been in one for years now and he's still really his brain's not right he can't talk very well can't take care of himself um so, um, you know, by the grace of God, I'm, I haven't hurt myself. And, uh, you know, I, I used to tell people who wanted to get involved in hill climb racing, uh, the, the road racers think we're crazy because when the road racers get hunted and they go off the track and everything, they hit a tire wall, stuff like, we have giant trees and rocks. And you'll see in, in, in Chasing Giants, there's some, there's some pretty bad impacts And uh, if I have one, I could end up being in a state where my wife would have to take care of me, and that would really break my heart. Yeah, Look at her every day and know that I am responsible for her having to do that. She's going to have to do that someday anyhow, because I'm so much older. I'm eight years older than she is, but I don't want to have to have her deal with it prematurely. So I'm retired from that. I still race. Uh, in parking lots it's called autocross and it's a lot safer i mean, we have a lot of fun it's sanctioned by the sports car club of america so it's all legal and everything the police come around and block the road and watch us you know but i still do that a lot this sunday we're, we're doing another one so those are fun so i'm still racing but not dangerous
0: gotcha that's that's awesome this has been such such a privilege to get to talk to you It really has. It's, I mean, you're, you're, you are, in my mind, you're a living legend. I mean, you, you are the the stories you have, the memories you have, and, and, and to have had the forethought to take all the pictures you've taken, you know, and, and.
1: Yeah. I am so glad that Tom said, oh, hey, bring your camera. Okay. And now every time I'm, I'm, I have a set, if you, if you go on to IMDB and you go to the tributaries page, Uh, there's like, you know, 80 some photos. I always want people taking behind the scene photos when I'm doing a film or when I'm involved in a film. And if, you know, I'm taking photos for them too, uh, because you're going to want to remember this stuff. And uh, so I am so happy that it just came about like that because it also helped me look at things differently. You know, I'm there and I'm experiencing it. But then when you look through a camera, you know how that changes things a little bit, changes your perspective. And mm-hmm. there's an artistic part of that 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 comes in. So uh, I, I got two different levels I could experience it. And I, like you said, uh, just to be able to be on the set and take those photos, that was a blast. I wish I'd taken a hundred more photos because there was some stuff. Like when if I was on the set the day they opened that refrigerator and and the smell of it and all the guts and everything well, wouldn't it be great to have a picture of that but have you have you seen any other photos behind the scenes i know that guy wrote the book which i bought a copy of there's not
0: many behind the scenes photos i no had. i mean other than what you've posted on facebook that's about it yeah there's some video i have but, seen some of the i have seen some of the video yeah uh, that's the, been floating around as well
1: yeah that was that was just lucky that i was there at the right Time and and I, I was smart enough to say yes to Tom. Yeah.
0: I I have I have a new goal. You have inspired me to do something. I don't know how I'm gonna pull it. I I don't know how I'm gonna pull it off, but I'm gonna pull it off somehow. I want to have you, Greg, and Tom on the show, and and I want I want to interview the three of you together and just let you guys swap stories. I'm just a nobody. But but you're but you're not like. Let me, let me tell you something. When when you agreed to come on the show, I called my friend Carol Sue and I was flipping out because I I love I'm a filmmaker today because of two people, George Romero and my mother. Yeah. Um. My mom, for better or worse, let me watch Night of the Living Dead as a child.
1: Yeah.
0: And from that, and I was probably three, four years old, and I, I was I was enamored and I was hooked. And I've loved horror films ever since then. And, then. and then I actually remember seeing Night of the Living Dead 1990 in 1990 or 91, somewhere in there. I did see it back when it first came out. Um, and I've, I've, I've been in love with zombie films. And, and, and as a young boy, I, I didn't – the whole concept of a filmmaker, director, that didn't really register with me. I just knew I liked these movies. But then in uh, seventh – it was either seventh or eighth grade, I came home from school one day. I turned on the TV and MTV was on. This was back when MTV played things other than you know, whatever it is they play now. They're still playing music videos and stuff. Um, There was some kind of Halloween thing going on and they were showing, I don't know if it was movie trailers or clips from horror films, but I I remember this vista of a mall parking lot and these grayish blue zombies walking around and it was Dawn of the Dead. And at that point in my life, I had no idea George had done another film. And as a 12-year-old boy, I was like, I've got to see this. I've got to see it, but I don't know how I'm going to see it. I remember I, I found an original, first edition copy of the book at the at the public library, and I I read some of it. Um, I, uh, the, the, I think it was the next Halloween rolled around. I was at my grandmother's house, and Dawn of the Dead was coming on one of the movie channels at like ten o'clock, and I remember just you know you could cut the anticipation with a knife. I mean, like I was just waiting for whatever stupid movie was playing to go off. It didn't matter to me what it was because I wanted to see Dawn of the Dead. The credits roll. I remember seeing the red carpeted wall, you know, the ear music. My grandmother walks out, tells me it's time to go to bed. Uh-huh. And I was like, and I begged her to let me stay up, and she would not let me stay up. And so I, I missed it. I didn't get to see Dawn of the Dead. And, and eventually, I think I ended up renting it at a blockbuster that was up the street, and I finally saw this movie, and it changed my life. I I, I have to this day, and this has been over 20 years, I guess, or close to 20 years, I, I there's never been a movie replacing like, I, I buy every copy of dawn of the dead that I don't own. If I, if I, there's an edition I find, I don't own, I buy it. There's still some right now. Oh yeah. I, I've i got a drawer full of copies of dawn of the dead right now. I should actually show them to you at some point. Um, <laughs> I, I, I I love that movie. I, I, I met Ken Forey. I was so nervous meeting Ken yeah. Forey that my glasses wouldn't stop fogging up. And he was so nice. He's like, relax, man, relax. You know? And I just, I was so nervous meeting him. And I was asking him all these obscure questions about, you know, The project that shot in was still inhabited and, you know, just just things he'd probably never been asked in a million years. And he asked me if I was a reporter twice. I told him no, but, but I'm obsessed with that movie. You know, my company is Dawn journey productions, right? I named it Dawn journey productions because of the journey I went through to see that movie and it just changed my life. And, and so I I am a, I am pursuing filmmaking today because of my mom and because of George Ramiro, the direction I'm taking with my company, I'm following what George Ramiro did you know, I've got to come up with a way to make capital. So George, when he first started Latin Image, he did ads. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm looking at doing ads. You know, I've, I've been talking to local, I've, I've talked to a couple of local business owners. I'm going to try to do ads, take that money, invest in equipment. And eventually I'll have everything I need to start, you know, making features and be able to finance myself. So George has been a big inspiration in my life, you know, so, um, so to, to get to talk to you, to actually get to, to for lack of a better term, touch that history a little bit is is a privilege for me. I, I was so excited to 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 know that you're coming on the show. I just I, I literally called my friend. I was like flipping out, you know. So I I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been an absolute privilege for me.
1: Hey, the pleasure is mine. This was fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm gonna try to get the three of you on now. I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I, I'm certainly a go for that, but it might be it might be tough with. <laughs> I don't know why they would want to be on on something with me, but uh, but you know, hopefully I'll I'll uh, I'll reconnect with Tom a little bit, and and we'll we'll maybe we can talk about some old times. That would be fun. There's, there's memories that I don't have anymore, because um, mm. I had nobody to really talk to about that. And I'm sure if Tom and I do start talking, and he wants to talk about some of that stuff, he'll probably say, "Well, you remember when?" You know that one day when this happened down there, oh yeah, I remember that. Just right and now, it comes back. I only have a limited memory of that. It was yeah. a hobby. It was something fun to do for, for the week. You know, who never? I, I never thought anything would come of it, but look what look what came of it. George went yeah. on to make some incredible movies. Plus, he already made some. Um, you know. It was it was a big loss when he passed. You know, what you know, what can you do?
0: Yeah, uh, I wish I could have gotten to meet him. I, uh, I I never did get to, but it's but there there's a lot of great stuff. Have, have, are you familiar with the the Garf, the Georgie Romero Foundation? Have you done anything with them?
1: I've heard of them, but no, I haven't done anything with them.
0: They're doing a lot of stuff to keep his legacy alive. Uh, Chris uh, Christian Stevracus Tasso's brother is pretty heavily involved. Um, and, and I'm actually hoping to have them on the, the show actually at, at some point. Um, I've, I've talked with Christian and, and I've emailed, uh, both of them and, um, they should be coming on the show hopefully here in the next, I, hopefully this year at some point. So I'm, I'm super excited to get to, to have them on. Um, but the, yeah, they're doing a lot of really cool stuff to keep, to keep his legacy alive. They do a lot of things for the community. It's a really great organization. And if you, if you have anything that, that, um, you could think of that you wouldn't mind partnering with, um, you could donate it to them as well. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a plan.
0: So Mike, yeah. thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I refer, I'm going to go ahead and cut the recording. I appreciate okay. it. Thanks. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for joining me on today's podcast. I had an absolute blast making it, and I hope you had just as much fun listening to it. I want to take a moment to remind each and every one of you that you're awesome, that you matter, that you're loved, and I'm so glad that each and every one of you are here. I want to give special thanks to my producer and sound editor, Donovan Brown, and I want to once again say thank you to today's guest. That other interview show is a Dawn Journey production. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, And please also take a moment to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really does help us out. And that's it, folks. Until next time, stay tuned, stay curious, and as George Amiro used to always say, stay scared.